Hello everybody, good day, and thank you for coming by another Merged Worlds Dungeons & Dragons story stream. It is a pleasure once again to be able to join you here and share another little bit of my tale. Uh, oh, um, thank you, Courtney, for the follow on Facebook. Cool. Um, so yes, uh, for those of you who may not have been here previously... Um, Merged Worlds is a Dungeons and Dragons adventure campaign that I have been writing and running close to over 30 years at this point. And it is a pleasure to get to sit here and share it with you guys, starting from now on, on a weekly basis. So, uh, hello, Beast, and hello, Jim. Uh, well, Teresa, you are lucky, because that starts right now. In fact... After today, the next Merge World episode will be this upcoming Thursday at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard... No, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And it will be continuing each Thursday thereafter. Historically, this has been on Sundays, um, but I have made arrangements at my full-time job to go part-time to be able to devote more time to this channel, this project, if you will, uh, and try to work to making this a full-time career. So uh, thank you to everyone who has supported me uh, up until this point and beyond. I really, really do appreciate it. Uh, but because of that, uh, going part-time, my schedule is changing. Um, my new stream schedule is posted up on my website, onlydraven.com. Um, I have myself streaming or something every single day uh, for the month of March, pretty much, when it kicks in on the 7th is the when everything goes full-blown. So uh, all of this is supposed to start rolling out. You guys will get to see me a whole lot more me, but this will also give me the opportunity and time to create and host more Dungeons & Dragons-themed content on the channel without having to sacrifice any of the content uh, type that I already make. So, very excited to do that. Um, but today, in particular, I'm excited because we get to really meet and hang out with and hear the story of uh, some pretty cool characters, uh, in my opinion. Uh, of course, you know, I feel like everything I write is pretty cool, but these guys I'm particularly a fan of this story, so hopefully you will enjoy it as well. Uh, it has been slightly implied to me that I may have accidentally left last episode on the tiniest bit of a cliffhanger. Um, I will endeavor to <laughs> not do that again. Heaven forbid. Um, but let's talk about that. So, our heroes have been on a quest for a while now. Michael, the husband and beloved of our main character, Dandy. Um, oh, hi, Turtle. No worries. No worries at all. Um, but they're on this quest to repair the magical spear Menandra, uh, an, an intelligent artifact weapon that was specifically uh, is was designed to fight undead. Uh, they have physically repaired it through great questing uh, in the lands of the Dwarven Kingdom of Corman. And now that the spear has been physically repaired, their next step is to get it, the spell that created it, recast. But they learned that only the original 
cleric or holy being who casted that spell would be able to do so again. And so they have entered into the sands, a pocket of transdimensional space outside of time, uh, rumored to be within the goddess Kiara, goddess of time, herself. The sands is uh, a library of infinite stories telling the tales and history of every world and every action that's ever happened. Um, everywhere. If you can find a way into the sands, gain access to it, you then can find a book. And if you get, choose the book that you're looking for, you can, in fact, enter into that book and relive the story or tale. Um, you are not going back in time per se. You are only reliving a story that has already happened. So any changes you make are not permanent because when you close the book, the book will be still written in the way it originally was. But you can't take anything out of the book physical, but magical, yes. Technically, you potentially could bring out a disease, maybe. It's never been, never been brought up until someone asked me a question about that this week. Well, what if one of them got a cold or a plague or a disease that didn't exist on the world? Could they bring that back? And uh, my answer on that one, I would say no, because every disease, at least of a non-magical nature, is still physical in some way. As microscopic as that may be, it's still physical. It's a life form of its own, and it's something that you're bringing out. So a disease could not, although potentially a magical disease, for sure a curse could um, of that nature, uh, but a standard, bog-standard disease, not so much. So our heroes had entered into the book to find who created the magical spear Menandra and hopefully be there when it was created to instead have their spear uh, cast upon instead of the original. Um, entering in, they found themselves in a uh, mountainous, deadish area and ended up very soon coming across some refugees they helped save from a small horde of undead um, who... The refugees were very surprised to see them, very much so, specifically Artemis, the cleric, and Darsh the Minotaur. They seemed quite in awe of Darsh. And they ended up traveling with these refugees who were looking for a place of safety and found themselves in the refugee town, city, encampment, whatever you want to call it, of Panamore. Take, you know, again, a cleric and Darsh, the Minotaur, everybody shocked to see them, drastically wanted them inside and ushered them in. Where They traveled to the main encampment where we ended the story. They had just met a dwarf named Fenton Battlesmith and the elven female general who leads Panamore, and that is Menandra River's Breath. That's where I left off. I'm also eating gummy lifesavers, so don't judge me. I love gummy candy. <laughs> All right. So, intriguing. To the page. Excellent. Well... I guess it's time to continue them. Before I do, did anyone have any questions about today's refresh? Uh, 
know it's a delay, so not should be too bad of a delay. I've got it down to the very minimal again today, so hopefully it should be okay. All right, I'm going to jump on in, but I'm keeping an eye out for questions should they pop up. Our heroes are all a little shocked. And again, I want to mention that uh, when they first heard Menandra's voice before they walked in the room, Dandy turned to look in that direction. And if her friends hadn't known better, they would have thought that she had a look of fear nigh horror on her face at the sound of that voice before Menandra stepped in the room. Menandra and Fenton just as shocked to see a cleric, a wizard, and a darsh. Now, I keep saying a darsh because we're going to find out why here very soon, but I, I think I've made it the point across pretty well that Darsh is something important. They, obviously, there's reason people are awed by Darsh. Um, Fenton, who occasionally uh, may slip out in a Scottish accent, and I apologize if you're Scottish, if it's insulting. I try not to be, but uh, all dwarves are Scottish, and as they should be. Because Danny used Menander and communicated with her. Ah, yes, Turtle. It's very possible that she recognized that voice, although she heard it for her ears for the very first time just a few moments ago. Menandra greets them as well, and while she has a look of shock at the party, her shock isn't quite the same as Fenton's. Fenton's is a shock of excitement and elation of, oh my god, what is this before me? Menandra's is a shock almost of disdain. Well, maybe not so much. Not so much with Darsh or anybody else, but she definitely does not look overly pleased to see Artemis. Um, so there's that. Um, Fenton, of course, immediately introduces himself and they could tell very quickly just by his trappings and what he wore that he was a paladin of the light. And a dwarven, obviously, paladin of the light. Uh, Menandra does not wear such trappings, although her, her armor seems to be pretty well made as well. It's definitely uh, somewhat different than his, more of an elvish style. So, our heroes immediately want to begin asking questions, but before they even have a chance... Fenton starts asking questions. How is it you're here? How have you survived? Where have you been? Where were you? How, where did you come from? All of these things. He seems overly shocked, again, at all of them, especially Artemis. He and Menandra have very different uh, reactions to seeing Artemis. Um, although their reaction to Darsh and Tobias are close to the same kind of shock. Wow, you're here. You're alive. I'm, I'm surprised to see you. Um, and again, Darsh even more so than Tobias. And they will say that in this, the few small moments that you've been in town, nothing jumped out as a cleric or a mage or a minotaur. Uh, but that doesn't mean they're not here. You only had a, they only had a small period of time to look around. Our friends were in a rough spot. They have to answer questions. But what questions... They have no answers to. They don't even know where they are or what's going on. They've picked up pieces. They obviously understand that whatever part of whatever country you're in is dealing with some zombies at this point. 
So, you know, they try to play off that because they did. The players who were playing these characters were in a spot where they had to honestly answer the questions I was asking them and they had no answers. Uh, and they began to spin a tale. And part of it was a little goofy, but part of it was luckily really well done. They began to spin a story that they had been traveling and had been um, in a very lost, wasted land far from here, uh, far to the north, because they've been trying... Wait, no. We'll, we'll talk directions in a minute, because I've got to look it up. But they're, <laughs> they're traveling a great distance and were uh, really just out in the woods for a long period of time and have only just recently been making a pilgrimage back to these lands when they kind of ran into all the mess that was going on. They tried to stay very vague with it. But they did keep saying that they had spent a large amount of time out in woods away from cities. And as they said that, I made a point of pointing out that each time they talked like that, Fenton and Menander keep looking at Darsh like, hmm? Hmm? You know? Um, so there's that. One second here. Ba, 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 ba. Where is it? So, yes, okay. So they were north traveling south. That was important. I want to make sure I had the right direction before I messed it up later. Um, so, as they're discussing this, Fenton, of course, has follow-up questions. Were there others where you are? Are there, are there more people? Are there other clerics up there? Were you the only clerics? Have you seen any other clerics? And through their questions, very quickly, the party realizes that clerics, not a common occurrence. Uh, mages as well. <laughs> Basically any of the squishies. But clerics especially. Uh, wondering, again, where are they? How, where have you been? How is it that you're still alive? They play very, uh, play dumb. And they could tell that Fenton and Menander didn't 100% buy their story and were a little, hmm, questioning about them. But, um, you know, there was enough of it there. They're like, hmm, okay. Obviously, you're a cleric of good. It's hard to lie about that. Um, but they're like, okay. And they're vague. And, and they ask, how is it that this place is alive? Panamore, what is this? I, we ran the thing, they brought us here, we didn't know this place was here. Fenton explains that Panamore, which is the elven word for city of life, um, is a, for all intents and purposes, refugee camp. Um, there are approximately 400 civilians, 178 soldiers and or fighters. 95% uh, of their makeup is humans, with 3% elves, 2% dwarves and gnomes. Um, and that they have been living up here for several years at this point. Um, Fenton keeps putting his questions to Artemis. And she answers some, but Mercy steps out. and Darsh doesn't speak a lot. Because again, Darsh isn't sure what his role is here. He knows that there's something about him everybody is freaking out about. And he he's not afraid, or he's afraid that if he says something... Maybe they're going to take it the wrong way and he's really going to mess it up. So Darsh, at this point in the story, really, really tried to stay quiet. And they talked about that early on. Darsh was like, I'm going to try to talk as little as possible. You know, but I'll, if I need to, I will. But, you know, it's best if I don't, because if I say the wrong thing, this could really go bad for us. 
especially if they think I'm a specific person and I end up saying something that proves that I'm not. We may be losing this kind of awe and help that we're getting here. So, they're asking, you know, they begin asking questions themselves. What is, what is going on? I mean, we've, we were away from civilization for a long time. No, we didn't return home. We also ran into some zombies, so we kept going south looking for whatever and couldn't find anybody. And then we came across these refugees here that led us to Panama. What is going on? And over the next short period of time of role-playing, going back and forth and talking, they learn the basic story of what has happened here. Uh, and so I'm going to kind of give you the information as I gave it to them. That Panamore is, again, one of the very last refugee spaces on this world, the world of Eloin. That's the name of the world, Eloin. That's, you know, important. Panamore is located in a valley very, very high in the Terrath Mountains... Um, it appears that Fenton is a member of the Order of the Holy Sun. During the conversation, some things slip out that led them, uh, our party, to uh, believe that Menandra may have once been a member of that Paladin Order as well, but for some reason she is not now. And they share the story of what has happened with Eloin. So it was over ten years ago when the dead began to appear in great numbers. They came from the south first, from the lands of Shorn. Like a plague, they spread across the land. Whole kingdoms were destroyed in a matter of days. Armies gathered to fight them, but the dead seemed organized and controlled. Occasionally more powerful undead were seen mixed within the hordes, but none of these were powerful enough to control hordes of this size. Over the past ten years, most of the living have been wiped out, and only small pockets exist, trying to survive in a world that is now ruled by the walking dead. Panamore is one of these places, a last refuge for the living. There are reports of wandering undead hordes that seem to be scouring the land for survivors. Less and less refugees are finding their way to Panamore, and each person who falls adds to the rank of the dead. Uh, people are here running out of hope, Supplies are dwindling, and it appears that soon only the dead will be left to wander the lands of Eloin. Um, so, they, the whole world, as far as they know it, is mostly dead at this point. Um, they don't know why, and they don't know how, but we know, they know that dead in the tens of thousands just started coming north from the southern lands of Shorn, which is a rugged, dry, volcanic area of the world where very few people lived. In fact, the only people who even lived in that area were roaming packs of feral gnomes. Uh, that The only gnomes in this world were feral, primitive, savage beasts that traveled and lived in the hot, acrid lands of Shorn. Thankfully, there's no gnome in this party because that would have been hard to explain. Um... At this point, they're just trying to hang on as long as they can. Uh, but every so often, you know, some undead will stumble up there and they've got to kind of take them out. And they have to be careful because with their fear of the dead being controlled, if a large enough group happened to come across Panama, they're done. They just, they just don't have the defenses to fight them. Luckily, this, air, this land is pretty easy to defend. There are only three entrances in. 
But again, a large horde with enough numbers that just don't give up would eventually wear them down. So Menander leads this place, and Fenton is her second in command. They've been friends for a very, very long time. Several, at least, three or four hundred years at this point. Uh, so they've been around for a long time. They also mention that, for some reason, at the very beginning, the clerics uh, were some of the first to go. It's almost like they were targeted. And uh, it became very... Soon that finding any type of magic user alive was near impossible. Um, lands that were usually where towers or temples would be, the undead roved right over them, uh, and very often right through the through any type of defensive magics there were. Because no matter how powerful the cleric is, you're just still going to lose in a numbers game here. It's just still tens of thousands of dead walking towards you, and you've only got so much magic, and you have to rest. They don't. So, Artemis is the first cleric any of them have seen in over seven years. Which is a long time when you only see a few people living people in general. Fenton makes a point of coming up and shaking Darsh's hand. Quite vigorously. And saying how happy he is to see one of his kind also still alive. And thanking him so much for leaving his forest. He knows that these are times of great peril and that it is truly a sign that a keeper would walk among them. Darce is like, yeah, no, no worries. Happy, happy to be there. <laughs> Not good at the fluffy speech, as we like to call it, the lofty, uh, poetic type speech of nobles. Darce is very blunt at times, like, yeah, glad I could be here too. <laughs> Menander also comes up and thanks him, although she's looking at him like there's a little something off. And he tries to smile, and everybody's like, ooh. Because the dark Minotaur smile's not, not pretty. <laughs> like, ooh. Except for his, his friends know Minotaur smile, but they're like, oh, that's not going to help us, man. He's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, of course, regardless of whatever Menander may be thinking, she is generally says, I'm thankful that you are here, my lady. I mean... Healing in a time like this is overwhelmingly needed. I mean, there are people here in the camp that are ill and that are sick. We, we low on food, but we do what we can. Um, maybe with your healing, we can help keep a few people alive a little bit longer. Artemis is like, well, of course, yeah, anything I can do. And uh, Tobias is like, and I, I would like to check as well, because, you know, he goes, maybe my magic can help in some way. And while I'm not a healer, I still... You know, herbalism, this and that. I've got potents. And he carries with him bags of different stuff. He's like, I got some stuff in here that might help. And they're like, please. And Fenton's like, well, yes, if you... I would be happy to, if you wouldn't mind... Again, it's early. I said it was like midday, I want to say it was. Midday, early afternoon. Fenton's like, yes, please. Um, as for the rest of you, um, Menandra says, I will have someone here in a moment that will make sure we get you set up with a place to stay. Um, you are staying. And, and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're not... Not even really else, nowhere else to go right now, so sure. And they're like, cool. So, Menander and, and Fenton leave, uh, taking Artemis and um, Tobias with them. And after they're gone, like the rest of them have about a few, few minutes before uh, 
the young guard who first brought them in shows up to take them and shows them some tent areas where they can set up their tents. Because they ask, hey, do you need tents or something? We've got some cloth here. We could tie something up. And they're like, no, we, we have some tribal tents we can stay in and such. And they're like, oh, cool, excellent. Because there's not a lot of buildings here. What few they are is usually where the, the children and the sickest. There's very few children here. Very few children. Um, in those few minutes, Mercy asks Dandy, what do you think? And Dandy can only really say, he goes, that's her. I, I've heard that voice before. Kind of like I just said before. He goes, I've heard it booming in my head, but this is the first time I've heard it in my ears. She goes, that's the voice of Bonandra. And she's like, hmm, like the hmm. <laughs> and they're like, okay, that's what we thought. We kind of thought. So they're like, well, how do we, how do we, what do we do with this? And Darsh is there and he's like, at this point, I think we just hang out. Something has to initialize this, whether it's today, tomorrow, or a week from now, we don't know. We don't know the storyline until we have a chance to really talk to Tobias about any of this. Let's just pitch in where we can. Be helpful, show that we're, you know, helpful people, and maybe we can kind of get into their confidence and we can kind of figure out what's going on here. And that's exactly what happens. They spend up spending the next few days helping out where they could. Um... Dandy, of course, some of her time is spent entertaining the few children that are there uh, who don't get a lot of chance to laugh anymore. Uh, but Dandy's little tricks and sleight of hands and juggling and stuff uh, give them a treat when she's also not kind of wandering around looking for information. Both Mercy and Darsh uh, offer to help on patrols. They also help them with the repair and cleaning of weapons and such, which, of course, they're very skilled at. Um, and they very quickly learn that there's a lot of people here that aren't that well-trained, and it's not long before what few guards that are trained recognize how well-trained Mercy and Darsh are, and then they step in uh, and ask, would you mind helping? And so they're also helping with some training maneuvers and, and strat strategies and such of that nature. Um, at one point when they're eating a meal, and Darsh, in a moment of pure restraint, hardly ate in public. I mean, he did go down and eat some pickled fish when no one else is around. But overall, he maintained some self-control. And at one point, again, they started to everybody to bring food to him. And he stood up. He's like, listen, I appreciate it. But it's more important to me that you all keep your strength. Please, everyone eat your meals. And everybody's like, okay. And they sit down and they start eating kind of thing. Because, you know, not that for everybody in the whole place eats at once. But they do eat in kind of shifts. And he's like, I don't need people trying to offer me their meal before everybody takes a bite of food. Uh, when he says that, both Fenton and Menander, who are nearby, kind of give a smile. like, thank you very much. We appreciate that. So the next few days, they acclimate themselves. They help out where they can. Artemis uh, being a joy to the people here. But few people have colds or even small cuts and injuries. The fear that they could get worse. And next thing you know, there's a zombie in camp. Having a, a healer there to take care of those things and literally cure them. Uh, is overwhelmingly useful and gives back a little bit of hope to the people. Dandy is the one who finally figures out through asking questions and talking to the children about why everybody thinks is so shocked about Darsh. And uh, one evening she explains it to them while they're all kind of meeting up in the tent and hanging out and talking about what they, they found in common. It seems that on this world, in Alone, Minotaur are known as keepers. Um... They are uh, a race that literally 
live in forests. They're rare and they're seclusive. Um, they live deep in the forest. They're rangers and protectors of nature. And it is a rare day that you would ever find one outside of his or her forest, part of land that they've taken upon their lives to protect. Um, each is known for carrying a great massive bow crafted by their own hand at their coming of age. They are expert marksmen and powerful fighters. They are friendly to most races, assisting them when possible, but to any beings of evil nature or intent, their wrath is terrible. They don't tolerate evil, not even a little bit. And it is only times of great strife and need that a keeper would ever leave his forest, and woe be to those responsible. So, to see a keeper, or a minotaur, in regular days before all this was a rarity. To find one alive when the forests are dying and such, and everybody's like, wow, we're so shocked to see you. But, of course, we would understand why you'd leave your forest. This is, this is obviously those times. The times of great need where a keeper walks among us. Maybe there's more. Well, they live in solitude in their forest, usually only coming together to have kids or small families. And usually at that point they leave and one the, when the child is old enough to go with one parent would until they're old enough to go on their own. They like to live solitarily, uh, mostly with nature. Um, they're a mixture between rangers and druids. And Darsh looks a little different than them. They're normally shaggier, and they don't wear lots of armor like Darsh does. And Darsh doesn't have a bow. And they never heard of a ranger with uh, you know, quite as many weapons as Darsh have. And, they seem, and Darsh seems a little small for one, which in itself is funny. Um, still, it's, it's, you know, nobody here had ever seen one before. So they're like, ah, the tails must have just been a little, you know, a little little stretched out there, and this one really is, and Tails just made him seem a little bit bigger. This puts more stress on Darsh, because he's like, ugh, I hate using a bow. Darsh is not an archer, by any means. He can fire a bow with a, with a negative, like any warrior can, but uh, not his skill in any way. Um, so, they also, they're also able to learn from talking Artemis and talking to Fenton, that in fact Menandra was also a cleric, or sorry, a paladin, but that when all of this kind of happened, her elven lands were completely overrun early on, and not only were nearly her entire nation wiped out, so her so were her two sons uh, slain by the dead, and as her family was lost, her people were lost. <clears throat> the clerics disappeared and all the people she'd spent her whole life swearing to protect were torn apart by zombies and other undead. She lost her faith and at that point kind of fell from being a paladin or chose to no longer be a paladin. Through this conversation, Artemis is also a little concerned because she can tell that Fenton is wearing down as well. Each passing day of the atrocities that happen in the world with no sign that anything good could happen. Right? So this could be turned around. It's going to weigh on anybody. But Artemis, especially, but this whole group of people, <clears throat> seem to have kind of given him a little jolt of... <coughs> One moment. Hope, if you will. Sorry, I... <coughs> Choked on a piece of gummy lifesaver. <laughs> One moment. Okay, I'm alive again. Um, so yes. 
he seems to be in a bit better spirits, which I'm sure, as you could tell, just annoys the piss out of Menandra. <clears throat> because she's lost her faith, if you will. <clears throat> so she sees him at this point, her good friend, someone that she truly loves, you know, friend way. Uh, to see him being falsely led, seeing his hopes rise in a world where she knows it's only a matter of time, would, she would only find frustrating. And you can also imagine why someone who has fallen from grace, someone who has lost faith in the gods, would be irritated to have a cleric just come walking up out of nowhere, poking at that. Um, so that is kind of in the situation that they're in now. And so they spend a good week, week and a half with them here in uh, Panama, just kind of hanging out, uh, helping where they could, uh, taking turns on the watch, uh, so on like that. The town watch, because again, it's several hours <clears throat> to get to any of the actual passes into this. Now, flying undead could be a problem, and it's not something they've ever really run into. They've heard of flying undead, but they've never actually seen any in this area, although there were tales of it early on. <clears throat> But none have ever flown over Panama, so at this point they they're okay in that regard. But occasionally, like I said, small groups of dead will wander up to one of the gates, and they've got to deal with it. It is such a situation. Again, they are joining there, and and they're trying to bring hope back. You know, Artemis and her optimism. The people love it, but under not so much. Um, and very quickly there, people are very excited, and, and you know. Artemis's magic and uh, Tobias's magic to help purify water <clears throat> and uh, even create foods and stuff in this situation um, overwhelmingly just as useful as their ability to heal because people are actually able to get a little bit extra food maybe another one just the one today okay <clears throat> thank you very much uh Slizeppi. Slizeppi. Ooh, I'm sorry if I said that wrong, but thank you. <clears throat> All right. So they've been there about a week and a half when suddenly an alarm is going off. Everybody knows, even they know what the alarm means. There's an issue. And of course, they all stop what they're doing and grab their weapons. Everybody carries their weapons around because you never know. Grab their weapons and go running to where they would find that main cabin area where Fenton and... Uh, Menandra live. Um, <clears throat> so they show up just in time. As you can see, Menandra is telling people and people is shouting out commands and they show up and I'm like, what's going on? Menandra yells out that we just re received word that some type of undead beast has stumbled through the defenses or found its way through the defenses. We need to head to the eastern pass to help. Um, they don't have horses. Nobody. There's like a very few horses. Uh, Menandra maybe has a horse, but she's not going to leave Fenton behind. So most of them just end up taking off, and, and really it's a run to try to get there and help. <clears throat> and Darsh and them grab their weapons and start coming too, and Menandra nods her head, accepting like, yeah, we'll take any help we can get. And they all start heading eastward. Uh, it only takes them about an hour before they come across them. Um, luckily, it's just one zombie. Unluckily, it's an undead hill giant um, whose one arm is broken off and just kind of hanging 
like a bonus split and it's hanging from some rotted flesh that sometimes just drags across the ground. And it seems we've just stumbled through <clears throat> and the, it was just too big. The guards at the weren't able to do much about it. And it's just kind of stumbling around, walking aimlessly in this valley now. Now, the fear is, of course, that if there is something out there <clears throat> that is leading or controlling the dead, how much does it know of what the dead do and the dead see? Um, Dandy and them have talked about it, and they can only think back to their one real experience of that, and that was Michael. Back when Michael was their Lich King kind of guy, and he was... He could see and hear everything inside of them. The death gem, powerful enough to potentially... This is what could have happened had the death gem uh, been allowed to run amok. Um, not saying this is the death gem, but definitely this is the kind of scenario that would have been a worst-case scenario had Michael succeeded. <clears throat> this seemed to have happened much faster, though. But um, They arrive, and of course, battle ensues. Um... Menanda arrives with Fenton and like 20 or 30 of her best warriors. And then there's our party there. Um, Tobias, very out of breath. Of all of them, he's the one that gets the least exercise. And I, I like to point that out. He gets out of breath often when doing very physically exertive stuff. But they show up and they start fighting this thing. And it's not really fighting with any type of strategy. It's just like a zombie. It's going out, something pokes it, it goes after it. Something pokes it, it goes after it. So they start chopping and hacking away at this thing, but it's huge. And they're hacking off chunks of flesh, but it does not really seem to care. You know, it doesn't really feel it. So with its one big hands, because it doesn't have any type of weapon, it occasionally swings down and either squashes or swings at someone. And after a few minutes, two of Menandra's soldiers are dead. Um, just squished, if you will, or thwatted a great distance and their bodies crunched. Um, had this been alive, they would have done more damage, but it may have done more damage. The fight would have been a lot shorter. But Darsh and them are very helpful, especially, and Darsh and Mercy in there really, really doing some damage to it. Artemis refrains from using her um, turn undead ability, because turning undead wouldn't help in this situation. All it does is make the undead go away from her, and for all they know, it could head towards the main encampment. You know, she doesn't want to take that chance. So turning undead away from her could just turn it into more helpless people. So she refrains from that, and she does her best to heal up anybody that gets it. Fenton is using uh, what, uh, his paladin powers as well. His warhammer's glowing at one point. And it's in this fight that everyone is pauses for a second in the battle the first time battle first starts because when Menandra whips out her magic spear and attacks this thing everybody hey, because the spear they're swinging looks just like their Menandra her weapon is the same crystal tipped spear and while it glows with magical power you know a little bit you know it's obviously a magical weapon her hair doesn't go crazy she doesn't merge with it like michael did her she, you know, she doesn't start moving faster and more agile i mean she's an elf pal and she's already pretty fast and agile but she doesn't start getting the boosted abilities they they normally would see when michael merges with the staff and starts going ba on things 
That's badass for those of you who didn't know. Um, so as that's all rumbling like that, they're, they're watching. They're like, okay, don't know what this means, but they're taking notes while fighting. And the battle goes successful. Um, with the, unfortunately, they, they did lose a few warriors that um, immediately had to be put to the torch. There's no burying dead in this situation. Um, you, you can't take that chance. So they immediately would be put to the torch. But as the battle is coming to an end and the hill giant is beginning to fall, a noise a short distance away draws Menandra, Darsh's, and Mercy's attention. And just a short distance away in some dead trees, because again, all the trees, no leaves, looks like fall to winter again, same thing. Just the trees are looking kind of twisty. They see several dread wolves that clearly don't look like they are alive currently. Uh, I believe that on here I had they see 3d4 dread wolves. So I would have rolled the four sided dice three times to see how many they found. I want to say it was actually a relatively small number. It was like five or six of them tops. Um, I didn't roll high. But a couple of them charge in as the hill giant's about to fall. And then. Two of them take off. And while people are trying to fight... The dread wolves, these are big. These are very big, big wolves. And they're undead. Uh, not all dread wolves are undead. These dread wolves happen to be undead. I, I should clarify that. Dread wolves themselves are a living creature. Of a sort. And as the, her people are attacking the ones that are attacking them, Menandra starts running and screams out, Don't let them get away. And Darsh and Mercy immediately understand why would these things flee? They're not doing pack stuff. <coughs> they can't take the chance that something might find out where they are if these things flee. So they go running after these things. Now, Menandra is fast. Even in her armor, she's an elf. You know, I mean, she's just quick. And she's not like a, a Artemis elf. And I don't mean to say that negatively. Ar Artemis is a clear. She doesn't do a lot of physical stuff like that. She's still pretty in good shape with all their adventures. But <coughs> Menandra has been fighting for, you know, close to half a, oh no, for close to five centuries at this point. She she knows her business and she's in tip-top shape as much as one could be with the food rationing and all. And she just takes off. And Darsh and Mercy go after her. Um, Mercy immediately starts falling behind because Darsh again has a really high constitution. He's very fast. <coughs> and he stacked up some points in a running skill, which let him uh, run longer and faster without getting tired. So he very quickly ends up overtaking Menandra, which at first Menandra's surprised, but then she's a little, oh yeah, this is a, he's keeper of the woods. Yeah, this is his, this is his terrain. And Darsh is like, please don't let me trip. Please don't let me trip. Please don't let me trip. And <laughs> he doesn't want to be the keeper that falls on his face in the middle of the race, right? You know, I mean, he's, he wants to help, but he also doesn't want to look like an idiot. And the wolves are not as fast as living wolves. They're a bit slower because, you know, <coughs> joints and bones and broken and stuff. They're not moving quite as fast as you'd think a living one would. I, I mean, I, I, that was an assumption I made, so that's how it works. And Darsh starts to catch up, and he decides to use his boost boots. 
but what he decides to do is not to boost at the closest one. He wants a boost when he gets to the closest one. His goal is to try to swing his sword at the close one as he goes by, maybe nicking it or slowing it down, but trying to get to the one up front. <coughs> I'm so sorry, I keep coughing. I <coughs> choked a little bit earlier on that gummy lifesaver. Um, this is a risky maneuver. We know that when Darsh is doing his Darsh Dash, Darsh Dash sounds like a food delivery place. Um, he could trip a lot easier. He can't stop. He just goes really, really fast. <coughs> but unlike a superhero like the Flash or somebody who they're going fast, but everything slows down for them. For Darsh, his feet going start going really, really fast, but his mind's still going the right speed. <coughs> so there's always the chance he could trip, lose his balance, or run into something and not be able to turn in time. That's the downside of this ability. The upside is it can let him act first in any round that he's not surprised in, but uh, it is one of those situations where, you know, he, he, it, can some, it has sometimes been more of a bane than a boost. But in this situation, as he charges by, he managed to do a few points of damage to the wolf without losing his balance. Not a lot, but it was enough to slow it down a little. <clears throat> and then when he got to the other one, <coughs> he had to, he was, he, I said, you can, are you going to roll to attack? And I said, your boost is going to run out in a second. And he's like, nah, I'm just going to jump on top of it. And I was shocked. I was like, really? He's like, yeah. He's like, I, I'm afraid I'm going to miss it. I'm going to run into something. He goes, I'm just going to grab it and go down. He goes, I think I'm stronger than it. <coughs> My goodness. I am so sorry for the coughing. And hello, Sal. <coughs> My goodness. Dar stash. <laughs> Oh my goodness, I apologize for the coughing. I, hopefully it will wear out soon. If I have to, I will go grab a lozenge. Um, is it possible to send a custom super chat? I believe that it is. Yes, when you do a super chat or a super sticker, you can put a message on it. People have done that. Also, if you do a donation via the link down in the description, which goes directly through PayPal, I believe you can put a message on that as well. I think I see it. I don't know if anybody else sees that one. <coughs> the Super Chat and Super Sticker, everybody should see, if I remember correctly. That's not what you mean. Well, I apologize. I wasn't sure what you meant. That's the only Super Chat I know of. Um, <clears throat> so, Darsh decides to dive on top of this thing. And successfully does. Now, he's got his arms wrapped around it, and they're kind of rolling around. Um, and as they are, you know, he's not really, he's just trying to squeeze and hold it, hoping his friends will catch up. A custom amount. <coughs> Again, I think so. I've seen people do odd numbers and change and such before. Um... I think so. Uh, again, I, I apologize. I've never sent one. Um, but yes, I've seen them pop up for like $3.40 and things of that nature before. So I believe it does give you that option. Sorry, I misunderstood the first question. Um, so he lands on top of this thing and he's kind of wrestling and he's just trying to squeeze it. And he hears bones cracking and breaking. The dead are not quite as sturdy as the living. But it's also a situation where... Um, <coughs> where... It doesn't care. He can crack it all he likes. It's not going to stop trying to bite him. And being bitten, not a good thing with zombies, right? And uh, 
So that's gone. Mercy and Menander at this point have reached the first one, because it did get slowed down a bit, and they enter into combat with it. <clears throat> it starts kind of hopping around. It's not slow. It's just slower than a regular living one. And it's trying to bite at them as well, and they're trying to squish it. And they're fighting, and it's doing okay, but Menandra's kind of taking it. And Menandra yells to Mercy, help the keeper. Which for a minute, Mercy's like, what? Oh, right, the Darsh, and starts running over to help him. Because they've already had a conversation. They're not sure what to do with Menandra. The living one. They need Menandra the spear to happen. <coughs> Does that mean their Menandra goes into the spear? Does she cast a spell in the spear? Does something happen? Does her dying help them? So they're in a conundrum. If it looks like she's going to die, do they save her? By doing so, could they be keeping what they need from actually happening? Um... So Mercy's like, okay, I'll help Darsh. Good luck. Runs over. Because they're not that type of people. They're not the type of people normally just let somebody die, you know? But Tobias has, has to consistently remind them, these people aren't alive. This story, this, this tale we're living through could have been a hundred, a thousand, a million years ago, for all we know. <clears throat> this is kind of how that happens. You know what I mean? If she dies, she doesn't really die. If we die, there's a problem because then we're dead forever. These are these are fiction. These are this is the past that we're we're seeing right now. Well, it may suck. We make make friends with some of these people, and they pass. Remember, they're not alive. And when we leave, the story stops until someone decides to read it again. It's not like this is constantly going on. It's happening because we're inside the book. <clears throat> oh, you're our fine Sal. I appreciate that you wanted to. It's not a problem at all. I'm just glad you came by and hung out with us today. It was happy to see you. Thank you very much. No worries at all. So Mercy shows up. And Darsh is like, hit it! Hit it! And she's like, but I could hit you. He's like, hit it! Hit it! So she rolls. And she attacks. Sure enough, she hits Darsh first. She rolled a bad number. Not a one! Not a one. But since she's aiming for something he's holding, there's a chance she had a chance of hitting anyways. And she just rolled very poorly. <clears throat> and she hits him on the arm, which he yells out, and he had to make a strength check to see whether or not he could still hold on to the thing at that point. Um, which he barely made. And it was funny because he yells, Hit him better! Hit him better! Hit it better! That's what it was. Hit it better! Hit it better! And Mercy's like, ah! And attacks again, and at this point manages to get a good thump on its head, which, even though it's undead, it's still going to crunch some bones. It stuns it for a second. Darsh is able to kind of get out and hold it down while Mercy just literally pummels the thing. Heck, you know, zombies, right? Got to go for the brain. Literally just crushes the skull until it's done. <clears throat> they get done, and they go back. They get up, and they're, they're sure, okay, this thing is dead. Again, like for real this time. It's not moving. We've This head is pulp. We're fine. They go rushing back now at this point to Menandra, and Menandra's standing there over another dead one that she had managed to cut the head off completely. The legs were still moving on the body, and so she's just at this point kind of stabbing it to try to stop that from happening. So they help as well, squish it, punch it, and uh, eventually it ends up dying. 
So, with other than Darsh's minor arm injury, they uh, managed to head on back to where the undead hill giant was. Sure enough, the hill giant has been completely dispatched at this point, as well as the rest of the dread wolves. Um, from what they saw, no dread wolves got away. There's no way to be 100% sure, because there may have been a dread wolf they just didn't see. But at this point, they didn't see any that got away. The concern is, when the reports came in about the hill giant, there were no mention of the dread wolves. So before returning home, Menander gathers up the party at the burn it, and, which takes a bit of time for the hill giant, right? But then they head to, to where the eastern entrance is, where the word came, you know, they sent a runner to tell Menander things were coming. They get there, and it's still pretty well defended. There's, still, there's some injured people and one dead from when the giant went through, um, which they dispatched. They have protocols for this. And, um, you know, they're kind of going through that. And they're like, no, we never saw Dreadwolf come through here. Well, now Menander has more concern. How did they get into the valley? Is there a way in they, they don't know? And if there is, is anything else here? <clears throat> Leaving a couple of her men that she brought with her to stay and fill in the ranks here of the dead and injured. The dead and injured are gathered. Well, the injured, the dead have been dealt with. The injured are gathered and are taken back to the campment that is Panama. The whole valley is called Panama Valley, but they really just call the town in the middle Panama. Should clarify that because I keep saying the name. <clears throat> so it takes several hours. Now they're moving a little bit slower. Plus, they're, they're also taking some very injured people. Artemis, again, super helpful to have around. Managed to make sure that none of the injured died, but some of them were still pretty injured, and she'd already used a decent amount of healing spells. Now, uh, by this point, Artemis has a staff of healing as well. Again, I've mentioned in the past that they have a lot of magic items that I don't really bring up until it's important that they have them. <clears throat> Everybody has a magical weapon of some kind. Everybody has a dagger of this or a <clears throat> weird bauble of something. You remember that Artemis has Pen and Teller, which is what she named her uh, <clears throat> guard dogs. That when she drops those down, she gets these two big dogs, right? Or cats, no, I'm sorry, lions. Two big lions that pop up named Pen and Teller. So, when they pop up, that's, that's things that she, he has. Mercy has her ring that lets her weapon pop back to her hand. <clears throat> Two things I haven't mentioned up to this point because they weren't really important to now are going to be a little more important, so I'm going to talk about them. One is that Artemis has a staff of curing. It is a priest staff. It has the ability to do some extra healing. It does have charges in it, which means... When it gets empty, it's empty. But it is possible to recharge it. And she's at a level where she could recharge it outside of an adventure. She can't do that during the adventure. This is something I've made quite clear. <clears throat> it takes days of preparation and takes components. And you have to have it on an altar that you've blessed and all this stuff. And you can recharge it some. Um, never quite recharge it as much as before. Uh, Merged Worlds is a Dungeons and Dragons story campaign that I have been... I'm answering a question if you're listening on the audio podcast. I started writing and running this Dungeons and Dragons campaign close to 30 years ago. Um, it's a homebrew world that I've created myself. Um, and I'm telling that story once a week at this point for a couple of hours. Um, just kind of sharing those adventures over 30 years of play. Uh, but it's one cohesive storyline from the beginning to the end across multiple groups and multiple campaigns. So uh, this is episode, what, 39? Woo, 39. Cool. 
<laughs> but that's what this is. Uh, it's also available as an audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify. I take this and uh, download it and make it audio and have it up there. Usually within a week or two of it coming after. I usually have a little bit of delay. But all the old episodes are also available on my YouTube channel, should you like to watch them. Hopefully that helps a little bit. Um, <clears throat> but she has that. Darsh has a bracer. Okay? If you don't know what a bracer is, it's kind of like a big thick thing that would go around your arm. It's not really a shield, but it can kind of be as one. <clears throat> it's like a defensive thing, but it, you know it's not going to block a sword as much, but it can still help in certain things like this. Um, he has a magical bracer that can store four weapons. Four weapons will magically go into it, and he can pull out the one he wants, but he can't pull another one out while there's one in his hand. So he either has to drop it on the ground or pull it back in. It takes a round of combat to pop one out or pop one in. So if he says, I'm popping out a weapon... Instead of grabbing one off his sheath, it takes a bit longer. And if he has one in his hand, usually if he's smart, he just drops it and pops out another one, taking that round. But these are things that he has now that he got somewhere in this most recent adventure. I want to say it was in Corman. Um, but it's something that he has that he does use often. So a lot of times when I say now he's using an axe, now he's using a spear, it's because he can hold up the six of his weapons in here. He's not walking around with all these things strapped on his waist. He does keep a battle axe on his back, and he does keep his javel. He keeps several javelins in that um, uh, thing, like a quiver of holding on his back. <clears throat> and he has, uses a shield, and he uses a longsword. Uh, but he does have several other magical swords and weapons in his bracer as well. I wanted to talk about those. Uh, the bracer is something I really enjoyed making. Um, the staff is a typical magic item that I've taken out of the game. And I appreciate that, Sal. Yeah, mostly it's Minecraft, but uh, once a week we do a little D&D stuff on Sundays. So hopefully you find this interesting as well. I appreciate you coming by. <clears throat> so they start making their way back. <clears throat> Fenton and Menander are chatting mostly ahead. Uh, Artemis and friends are kind of hanging back in the group. Artemis trying to help care for injured and such as they move along. <clears throat> they finally make it back to Panama, and when they do, uh, it's pretty much nighttime at this point. And Darsh and friends uh, also go into the cabin. They just kind of follow Menander and Fenton in there, who don't really say anything about it. But after they get in there and they get inside, and they're away from the men, if you will, they're everybody else. Menandra starts getting mad. She's angry because she and she tells everybody because these because she's explaining to the to the group here. These things are happening more and more often. More and more dead are coming across Panama. It's still in small groups, but each time it gets a little bit worse and it's getting a little bit harder to defend because they're losing more people than they're gaining at this point. So if we lost four people today. That's horrendous. That's a huge loss for them. Um, so she's very, very concerned. And her and Fenton get into a conversation that the party's heard them chat about occasionally over meals and when time around they're with them, but somewhere out there is something, Menandra is mad, something out there is something that's doing this. Something is controlling them. Something is sending them out there. We're never going to survive if we don't find out what that is. In this argument, Menandra is consistently saying she's sure that the answer is somewhere in the lands of Shorn. I talked about Shorn a little bit earlier. Again, a very magma, cavern, volcanic area far, far to the south where pretty much nobody lived, no crops will grow, 
just feral gnomes. Uh, carnivorous feral gnomes. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, eat, yeah. So, that was there. So, it's like, well, my goodness. Uh, how do we get in there? Uh, do you have a Discord? Yes, I do have a Discord. Uh, Only Draven Gaming is the name of it. Um, and there is a link down in the description of this video, or you can go to my website, onlydraven.com. There's a button right at the top, take you right into the Discord, if you wanted to pop in. Now, I don't keep Discord up during the stream, but I'd be happy to take a look at it after the stream is over, if you'd like. I think, I appreciate it, thank you. We'd love to have you. So this, going back, and, and Fenton's like, yeah, but we'd never get there, this and that, going back and forth. And then Fenton mentions something that they haven't heard, but obviously Menandra has, and she's not happy that he's bringing it up again. And that's like, we could try to go to the Temple of the Holy Sun. Menandra clearly gets frustrated with him. And she's doing her best to maintain herself. Because this is her best friend. But you can tell she's mad that he keeps bringing it up. And she's like, there's nobody going to be left there. It is far to the south. No one could have survived this long. In the middle of all of where all this happened. Ankle fibers. There you go. <laughs> and Fenton mentions, ah, but they have the stone of light. Its power could be protecting them. And Menander is going to, bah! He goes, you, he goes, the gods have given up on this world, Fenton. There's no, there's no one looking out for us but ourselves. Now, as this is going on, Menander gets a little bit more heated and a little bit angry, and she can tell frustrated. And, and Fenton gets into a very fatherly, patient, like, lets her vent, and then's like, now listen. Gets more calm, which, you know, if you know anything about anything, will probably make her angrier than help her. But he's like, he's like, listen. The gods have not abandoned us. She is standing right there. And then, of course, everybody looks at Artemis, and Artemis is like, oh, great, I'm the target. Menander's like, Arr. goes, they are casting, she's casting spells. God still, Tavian still speaks through her. The gods are still out there. Maybe we just haven't found a way to talk to them yet. And they said, and finally, at one point, she sits down and she's frustrating and said that uh, these people here, that the fact that we have a wizard and a cleric and a keeper, and Dart's like, oh God, don't target me. They're here now after all this time. This is a sign that the gods are giving us they're still out there. We have to take hope when it's given. They've not abandoned us. We need to take these steps. We need to go and see if anyone's there. There's nowhere else in the world that we're going to find any other hope that we know of. The temple is the best thing that we've got. So if someone is left there, she goes, and, 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 and he puts his hand on her shoulder. He goes, and he goes, besides Lass, if anyone there is still alive... They could be waiting for someone to come and save them. Who else is there? Our brothers could need us. And she kind of sighs. And he gets a bit of a look in his eyes when she does, because he's like, oh my God, that worked? Because, you know, this is clearly an argument they've had before. I appreciate that, Sal. I'll, I'll definitely check it out after the stream. Thank you. <clears throat> um, Menander says, how? How would we get there, Fen?" It's weeks of travel through infested, undead lands. We can't take all of these people with us. They'd never survive that journey. 
We can't take a force of men with us. If we take the soldiers, who's going to protect them while we're gone? And yet alone, we'd never make it. Two of us trying to cross all that land, there's no way we would survive. So she goes, I have faith. He goes, she goes, well, I may not have faith in the gods. She goes, I have faith in you, but even you can't pull that off. At this moment, five or six people are like, <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <laughs> look over there, and everybody at the group's like, eh? Now, if you're not watching this visually, I'm going to try to explain this because this is a moment where I'm going to tell you just a personal aside story where this look comes from. I have a little sister, love her dearly. Um, and when we were children, she, uh, there's a pet peeve that I have. And that's when people walk up to you and they say something and they obviously have something they want to tell you, but they don't want to tell you, they want you to ask for it. I'll give you an example. Someone comes over and sits down on the couch and says, man, I had a bad day. You could have just told me what your bad day was, but you don't want that. You want me to ask you, oh, really? What happened? Uh, Sal says, I have to go to bed now. You stream this every week. I do, although we're switching to Thursdays this upcoming week, and it's going to start going every week. It was three weeks and then one week off, but my streaming schedule is uh, changing as of next week. Um, on my website, onlydraven.com is a new streaming schedule. If you want to check it out, there's a lot of different stuff we do, but this will be every uh, Thursday after starting this upcoming Thursday. And Enjoy your rest. Thanks for coming by and hanging out. The reason I tell you this story is I'm a, that's a pet peeve of mine. I hate people walking down. Just tell me the story. I'll listen. Don't make it me act like I'm doing you a favor. Like you're do, I'm sorry. You're doing me a favor by telling me the story you obviously want to tell me. Bugs me. Bugs me a lot. But my sister, as a child, was the worst human being in the world for this. She'll hate it if she ever hears this part of the story. I make, I've made fun of I still make fun of her at Christmas and stuff for doing this stuff. The whole family laughs. She hates me telling the story. My sister was one of those people who would come sit down. And I want you to watch because this is what she'd do. She'd sit down on the couch next to me and she'd be like, Man, I had a bad day at school. Hmm? And she would do that. She would, she'd tell then her face would go, Hmm? And she would look at me with just smile like, You're going to ask? And I would just get up and walk away. And she would, well, let me tell She'd follow me. Let me tell you. And she'd follow me around the house and such. But I would, I would never give her that peace of mind. But that became a running gag where it's like, man. And that's kind of how, uh, how I looked at this moment. I've done that in D&D &D and my players are used to seeing that kind of thing because they know that joke. So sometimes when we're, we'll be playing D&D, &D, I'll be like, what? It's like, I want you to ask that question. Um, but yeah, I wanted to show, that's what this moment really, really was. <laughs> they, they sit there and everybody's like, <clears throat> Menandra and Fenton look over and they're like, Mm -hmm. look like, would you come with us? <laughs> and they're like, well, I mean, yeah, I don't have anything planned this week. You know, it's one of those things where, of course, they want to go. And they're like, yes, we'd be honored. I mean, clearly, there's a danger. We wouldn't want you going alone either. But we also agree on borrowed time. If we can help in any way, come, you know, end this nightmare for the world, even if at the cost of our own lives, it's something we're willing to do. That's heroic talk. And... Menandra and Fenton were impressed. So, a discussion begins. How would we do this? So, they start to plan that they're now going to go south towards the temple and far beyond the temple, 
potentially the land of Shorn. But if they can get to the temple, they may find some more paladins, or if nothing else, potentially the Stone of Light. What is the Stone of Light? They don't know at this point. But everybody talks about it like everybody already knows what it is. And that's a hard thing. That is a hard thing to overcome even in our own lives. When you're hanging out with a group of friends and everybody's talking about something as if everybody already knows what it is, it's hard to say, I, I don't know what that... You don't want to interrupt. Can you tell me... You just play along. Like, oh, yeah, that thing. Yeah, I love that stuff. Yeah, it's, I've had it five times. It's delicious. You're like, we're talking about a book. I mean, it's delicious to read. I mean, you know, you, you do that. And that's what the character... Oh, yes, of course. We'd love to. Stone of Light. Love that thing. I have their album. It's phenomenal. You know, it's one of those moments where you're just not sure how to respond, so you just try to play along. Because clearly everybody talks about it like everybody would know what that is. Just like everybody would know what a keeper is. Now, somebody says, oh, Santa Claus. And you're like, what's a Santa Claus? Everybody knows what Santa Claus is. They get stuck in a lot of those situations throughout this adventure where people talk about things as if they should know. And I did that because it then came up a situation where they would have to, through either very intuitive questioning or story, find a way to find that information out without being too obvious. It gave them a chance to role-play that kind of situation, which we hadn't really done before, where they're surrounded by people where they couldn't just say, okay, what's going on? They have to play along like they know. And it, it added a cool little dynamic for this adventure that they kept getting stuck in those situations where they didn't know what was going on, but they were the only ones who didn't. So you, just to add a little depth to the story, that's kind of what was going on. So... They decide to prep up and get ready to go. It's going to take... They, they take a few days to gather up, say what's happening. Clearly, a lot of the people were not happy to hear this, but when they say, we're going for help, again, these are people with very little to no help, uh, uh, hope. What little hope they just got is the cleric, and now the cleric is taking Menander, and they're going to go get help. They're going to go find the paladins. People are like, oh, this could be the turning point. And that's exactly how Menander and Fenton sell it, even though... They pretty much believe there's a good chance they're going to die before they ever get there. Um, but, you know, they leave somebody in charge. Probably some important people. I, I don't remember their names now, but there were a couple of random NPCs that popped up. Captains of guards. People that they met. Ladies and uh, that were looking after the children. And Dandy became friends with them. And Dandy gave goodbye hugs to the kids. There was a, some that kind of stuff. Because it, it hurt them to know they were leaving these people. And that most likely these people have been dead for however long. Because, again, these people are just sh shadow replications of the people that once lived, although ungodly accurate, completely accurate. These people will fade, and they ha they went to death. Oh, and they never really got to meet them. You know what I mean? In the true story, they were never there. So, um, in their mind, these people get to live on a little bit in their own memories. I apologize if I'm going into too much depth about Panamore. Let me know if I should stick more to the story. I know I'm going in a lot more depth. If I put a... I, there was a, this was a very role-play-heavy section, uh, very low uh, fight scene section, uh, because I wanted to give them opportunity to have to role-play situations they hadn't before. But please, tell me things like that get boring. I can adjust. So they decide to head out. Now, it's at this time that the heroes decide to let Menandra and Fenn in on a couple of secrets. Secret number one, the chest of holding. Told about, because I mean, they're obviously going to have to see it. They start pulling it out and things. Hey, Bragg. They start whipping it out in the middle of the adventure. They're going to find out. It's best they know ahead of time. Menandra and Fenton are a little pissed when they see there's a whole bunch of food and drinks in there. Um, 
but they don't say much about it, but it definitely hurt the reputation of the party a little bit. There's something that the group had talked about. They had given them some supplies and such, but they didn't know quite how much was in there. Now, our party, of course, is like, hey, we are the only ones here that can really die for real reels. We have to make sure we have food and water to survive this. But it's hard to explain to someone that they're not real, right? You can't do that. But they do, once they see the all of the weapons and armor and such in there, um, they're like, okay, well, you're geared at least. Um, and supplies will help. They also talk about the flying carpet. Do we use the flying carpet? Now, the flying carpet can only hold a certain amount of people. It is going to be hard-pressed for all of these folks to sit on it, which means some people would have to ride in the chest of holding. While they haven't seen any flying undead in a while, in years, the concern is they may come across more of them as they go south, and on the flying carpet, they may get picked off. It, and, and the same thing, flying above the ground could be dangerous. So they decide to go on foot and save the carpet for situations that may really need it. Crossing large bodies of water, uh, they find a small horde, they got to go around it or over it at night, things like that. They tried to keep its use to a minimum. Plus, you know, Fenton and Menander are like, wow, you guys got some serious magic loot in here. At the same time, they're like, I don't know if I want to fly on a carpet, you know. So, here's that. But they go up and they gather all their stuff. They assume that by feet, it is marching three hours. In three hours, a little less, it will be my 10-year anniversary since I've had a drop of soda. Or pop, as you call it. I haven't had soft drinks since March 1st, 2011 was the... First day I gave them up. So, intriguing. Um, so, they assume it's going to take between three weeks and a month to, meet, to reach the Mountain of Light. Obviously, there's a lot of, of sun and of lights in uh, Merged Worlds because the light is the primary god of good. But there's extra lights in this one. So they're going to get to the Mountain of Light to get to the Temple of the Sun to see if they have the Stone of Light, if you're following my lots of bright things. They're going to be traveling through some incredibly dangerous lands. They need to try to avoid the undead as much as possible. A, they can't take out a horde, and B, they never know if there's going to be something more intelligent in there. Vampire, uh, skeletal lord, something in there that might uh, A, be harder to fight, and B, a little bit harder to, um, or more likely to go and tell about them to whatever could be out there. They're assuming there's a big bad. Everybody is living in this situation that somewhere out there is a big bad that they have to find. I think it's a safe assumption. I haven't said yes or no, but everybody in this situation believes that there's somebody controlling this and finding that somebody is the key to potentially saving the world. So... They want to try to avoid the undead, A, so they don't get seen, and B, if they do have to fight them, if they kill too many, that might also get noticed by whatever is controlling these things. So, you know, there's that. Um, they take three days to get everything going. They, decide, they proceed to head out quickly, and they're going to head directly south. Uh, they reach the border valley. By this point, the guards know this is going to happen. They say some goodbyes, give some last-minute... Uh, uh, rule, you know, uh, guidance and suggestions of what they should do. If we're not back, you know, don't come after us kind of thing. And then uh, they're like, okay, here we go. And they tell them, once we cross this border, once we leave this valley, 
We can't eat or drink anything we find. We don't know if it's poisoned. We don't know if it's infected. A, we haven't had anybody with magic to check. Tobias might be able to help with that, but we are under the assumption that the food and water we're carrying is all that we're going to have. And they they filled up. Luckily, there was a water spring. Water is the one thing that they don't have a problem with because it's coming out of the mountains. There's a small waterfall and a river. So they have plenty of water, but they didn't want to take too many of the people's supplies uh, because they're not jerks, even though technically these people are all going to die anyways. You know. So Artemis has some spells where you can purify water. So if they need to, she can do that. She also has some create food spells, but they're, uh, those take up the same as uh, healing spells. So she's a little hesitant to use them if she doesn't have to. So they leave the valley and start heading south. And it's a good three or four days before they finally see any undead. They see signs, you know, trampled things here and there, um, animals, carcasses, maybe a, a deer here and there that... Uh, might have been a last surviving deer that's been gnawed on and is just laying there. Not undead. It appears that, other than the dread wolves and some specific animals, most animals die from the infection. You're not going to find a lot of zombie cows and zombie chickens. It's just not going to happen. But some animals, like, you know, if you watch anything, dogs are always notorious for becoming infected. Um, so dogs, wolves, maybe even some foxes, even though they're not technically canines. I'm just saying. But even though they're seeing these small groups of undead, they are successful in maneuvering around them and such. They head south and they travel for several days until they're getting to a point where they're again going through um, a hilly area. And they've been coming down a lot. Remember, they were up in mountains, and even though a couple places are steep, most of it's very hilly. It's gradual mountains. It's not like a, it's more like the Tennessee mountains than it is the Rocky Mountains, if that means anything to people, uh, in America, anyways. Um, so it's more sloping down, but they do get some areas where it's flat, and then it gets hilly again. And they're heading through a hilly, wooded area. Again, the trees, basically no leaves on them. The ground, very orange and grayish and brown from the leaves that have fallen. Um, so is it, will the trees leaf up again? How long have those leaves been there? Looks like they've been there a little while, but not 10 years while, right? So are the trees infected? Hard to tell. They're traveling through an area of this nature. And as usual, Dandy's kind of up front, um, being a lookout, look, not really searching for traps as much, but looking for any signs because she can move quietly. And she's smaller. She needs. She sees the undead. She has a much better chance of sneaking back to everybody else and letting them know before the undead would ever see them. So she's saying a little bit ahead. They can still see her. They're, she's careful enough to stay in sight. So if anything bad does happen, Darsh can kick the boots on and zoom up there if he needs to. They again, did not bring any type of horses or animals. Clearly, they don't have food to feed them. They didn't have any anyways, and they would be way too loud. So they're traveling through this area, and they're going up the hill. When all of a sudden, the dungeon master told Dandy to make a perception check. Dandy succeeds in her perception check. So as Dandy is walking through the trees, she's like, something's not right. And the Matrix likes falls backwards as an arrow goes right where her head would have been. She has tumbling. She's very acrobatic. But in this situation, it was a fall or get hit situation. So she doesn't brace her fall. and She thumps down and rolls down the hill a little bit. 
and there's an incredibly loud thunk and crack noise. Now, everybody else sees, hears that. They see Dandy fall, and then they see a tree, probably this big around, wiggle, and then kind of split a little bit, and a big chunk of the, the chop of the tree starts to fall off. Everybody starts running to Dandy. Dandy rolls down the hill a little bit and kind of falls behind a stump or behind, behind another tree. And she's waving. And they're running up like, what's going on? Oh, God. And then they start diving behind trees as arrows start coming. Arrow hit the tree above Darsh's head. With enough force, he felt the tree vibrate. And they're like, okay, this is strong. And so they have to start trying to make their way up. And they were literally trying to make their way up undercover as much as possible. They were past. They had strategies. They were relatively successful um, and were able to make it almost up to Dandy. Dandy, in the same right, decided to try to make it back. And in one of the worst roles Dandy has ever made, Dandy failed one of her checks. And gets hit with an arrow in the shoulder so hard that she can hear her bone crack, her shoulder dislocate, and it literally spins her like a top before she hits the ground and just starts rolling down the hill. And the arrow doesn't break, so it's just snapping and it's hitting things because the arrow's so thick. Artemis is like, <gasps> but they got to try to get to Danny. Darsh isn't playing anymore. Darsh starts moving forward, grabs his shield, and doing the best he can. And the arrows start coming. Now, it's not like 100 arrows at once. One or two arrows at a time. And as he's trying to rush up to Dandy, he decides to kick the boots in at the last second, because he knows that whoever's shooting at them isn't going to expect that. Uh, <laughs> there is no arrow, so Dandy just falls or rolls. <laughs> That's funny. He decides to zoom ahead to get to the tree, get behind a tree close to where Dandy is. And as he's zooming ahead, he's the first person that gets to see what it is they're facing. And there are two of them. And they're standing up the hillways behind almost like a, several fallen logs that have kind of fallen and rolled down the hill and hit against each other. Um, and he is not excited at all. Because what he has found are two no longer living keepers who are in fact much larger than Darsh. He can tell just from the distance that they're at right now that the, the fur is falling mostly off and the patches where even skin is missing, but they're still drawing these arrows and firing with precision. These are not mindless undead. And there are two of them. He starts yelling back down to everybody. Doesn't know if there's more in the area, but he has to give them a heads up of what's coming. So everybody else is being extra cautious. Dead keepers, dead keepers. I can't remember. They read, yelled something like that. But they're facing, and I've built up the keepers at this point, being the ultimate of goodness and protection, and that's what Darsh is meant to believe, and how awesome they are with their bows. Um, <laughs> and here's two of them. Again, why would there be two of them? And that was another thing that they had to think about. And they brought that up. I didn't say anything. I was very excited they picked up on it. If they live a very secluded lifestyle, what are the chances they'd find two undead ones together? Unless something brought them together. I'm just saying. So, in this situation, the only ranged weapons that they had is Fenton did have a crossbow. Heavy crossbow. Very strong. Very good aim with it. Um... 
Artemis has her sling, but she's not going to get it anywhere near them. They're so far up ahead, you have to have something more long-range. Darsh with his javelins have a potential to whip something that hard if he really throws, but to wind up and throw that, he's going to have to put himself into the line of fire. And these things are smart. While one is drawing another arrow, the other one's firing. So it's almost one, one, one. One is aiming and firing while the other one draws. It's almost like a heartbeat. Again, these are not mindless undead at this point. They're even if they're not, they're full of what they were. They at least have some of their uh, memories of strategy and combat. Artemis is freaking out because Dandy is just laying there. She's unconscious at this point. She took so much damage from that that she's unconscious, laying there. The arrow is sticking through a bone, and her shoulders just like way longer than it should be. And she's just laying there, and the blood and Darsh is furious. He can't use his boots again because he used them to charge up to get to Dandy. So he has to start making his way forward. So Darsh decides to do what only Darsh can do. He decides to crawl. I was shocked when he said that. But he said, I'm going to crawl and I'm going to keep my shield in front of me. Darsh's strength are enough that when the arrows hit, it's going to be a big jostle, but unlike everybody else, it'll make his arm a little numb, but he's going to be able to hold up against it. He's also, if you'll remember, carries a shield made out of dragon hide. None of these arrows are magical arrows. They are not going to go through that shield. Um, Mercy has a magical shield as well, but it's like a plus one. It's okay. But Darsh's shield is very, it's green dragon uh, scale, if you remember. Uh, it's going to take a hell of a lot more than even a keeper arrow to bust through that thing. So, sure enough, he's taking a point of damage from every arrow that it hits because it's jostling him. It's hurting him. Plus, he's crawling. So I said, ever around you, he's, and I'm not saying he's on his hands and knees, clearly not, but he's down on the ground moving as low as he possibly can. And, uh, you know, the only thing sticking out is his one horn, and they're ho he's really hoping they don't shoot that off because he only has one at this point. Very frustrated by that one horn thing, by the way. I like to bring it up a lot and make fun of him for it. So, they are flipping up. And Darsh manages to get up close enough that they start focusing on him. Because here's a big thing with a shield coming up. Now they're arrowing at him completely. And as soon as they do, everybody else uses that as an option to get... Uh, as an, uh, a situation where they can get up to Dandy. Um... Darsh is starting to get tired. Because he's still taking a brunt of this. He's still taking... It's damage. It's not what I would call permanent damage, but it's wearing... It's, it's, it's more taking out his energy to the point where eventually he's going to be too tired to hold up a shield. So he's losing temporary hit points. Unlike regular hit points in Dungeons Dragons, when you get shoot, shot with an arrow, you either have to heal over time or use a magic spell. These are temporary loss. Give him 15, 20 minutes of rest, they'll probably come back because it's exhaustion more than physical damage. Um, I have taken something um, from some of the old other RPGs I've played. Um, old RPGs, Palladium, things like that, use something called SDC points, which are basically the amount of hit points your armor has. And in some situations, I keep track of that when it's specific magical items, uh, because everything has its breaking point. So I've been tracking Darsh's uh, shield for a while, uh, but it's, it was nowhere near breaking at this point, so he's in good shape. So... Darsh is now pinned, because they're just shooting at him, and he can't crawl with two arrows hitting at him. He's just behind his shield holding... It's a big shield. Darsh has a big shield. Dandy could stand behind it and wouldn't poke out. 
Um, Artemis is now healing Dandy and not sure what he's going to do. Darsh is given assistance. Anybody have an idea who it was? You probably don't know. Darsh is laying there figuring out how is he going to get above when a ranged weapon is fired at the keepers over his head. And boy, is it hot. A fireball goes scorching over his head, blasting into the ground where the keepers were, burning the keepers and causing the keepers to jump for cover. Darsh feels the heat again hitting his shield. While it's heat around him, the shield does protect him from the blunt because it is still dragon scale. It would protect him better from acid, but it still has some heat protection. Darsh uses this opportunity to draw his sword and start charging ahead. As does he can hear Menandra, Fenton, Mercy, and Ulrich. I haven't mentioned him in a while, but he's there too. All come charging up while Artemis is hanging out with Dandy. And Tobias is there getting ready to cast another spell should he need to. So he still has his magic missiles that never miss. Darsh gets up there. The keepers draw swords even bigger than his. And melee combat begins. For the first two rounds, it's Darsh against both of them. And they're not slouches. Uh, they're very strong, but they're not as fast as he is. They're easier to hit because they're really not trying to defend themselves. They're just trying to hurt. Um, so he does take some damage from them, but he does way more than he receives. Because again, undead don't care about pain. They don't have that fear. Chop an arm off, they keep coming. Moment later, Mercy's Morning Star comes flashing up and hitting a keeper and then disappears and appears back in her hand again. And everybody's running up of that nature and all the attacking starts. It takes about five or six rounds. Once their bows are down, keepers, had they been alive, strategically would have probably still wiped the floor with these guys. Um, but because they're undead and they only still remember flashes of their memory, of their instincts, um, they end up going down. Some damage is done to Darsh, like I said up front, and I think Menandra took a hit, but nothing serious. And Fenton, who also has some minor heals, was able to heal uh, Fenton up all by him, her, himself. But they managed to take these down. Now, when these keepers are dead, Darsh is looking down at what people are assuming he is. And these guys are a good two feet taller than him. They're bigger than even the the emperor of Kronayar, like who is the biggest minotaur he knows, with the exception of maybe... Taboric, who is uh, Fire Moon's best friend, who's also a monstrosity huge of a minotaur. Um, and the guys, you could, he could tell that they're much shaggier than he is. And he's seen some minotaur with longer hair, but these guys are really shaggy, almost more bison-y, if you will. Um, uh, horns are a little bit different. He looks at him, he says, I can definitely see how they're a type of minotaur, but they're definitely not a type of minotaur I've ever seen on Merge Worlds or his world that he's from. They don't really have anything on them other than these incredibly thick-shafted uh, arrows and this bow that Darsh has to slightly struggle to draw, like, to pull back. And he's strong for a minotaur. Tobias reminds him that he can't take the bow home with him, which he forgot about from it there and was like, I'm totally going to hang this in my house over my mantle. And he's like, you can't take it back, it's physical. Darsh is very unhappy, but he's like, I'm going to remember this and have a replica made so I can hang it over my mantle. <laughs> it was very, very important to him that he had one of these bows to hang over his mantle so he could tell this story. Um, but they were successful. And after they have to end up 
they still travel on. Artemis heals up Dandy quite a bit, uh, but she because of the amount of damage, she's still very tired. Uh, so they put her in the chest of holding and carry her for a little while till they can get to a place that they can camp. Um, when they are camping, they don't use a fire. Clearly, you can't, right? You don't want any... Last thing you want is a little torchy thing glowing and an army of undead to come walking up on you at night. They also look for things like caves, uh, gullies, things that they can hide down in. Um, find a waterfall, hide behind it. You know, that kind of stuff. Uh, they, they try to do that. If they can't and they can find like an old farmhouse or a building in the middle of nowhere, they may go in there and if it seems safe enough, they may try to camp in there. So at least they've got some protection from you know weather because it still rains and whatever. There's no snow at this point, although it is rather chilly at night and in the morning. In the early parts of the adventure, the further south they go, the warmer it gets. I mean, how temperatures work, right? So... After a day or so, Dandy's back up and at him again. But now, Dandy is still in front of everybody, but she doesn't say as far ahead. Because that's the last thing I want, or more drama like that. She had failed her original row. That first arrow potentially could have killed her. She had a good shot, but I still make it a gamble. So they travel again, and they're continuing for several days. And they're moving on and on. And they... In much classic Dungeons & Dragons style, every few days they run into a situation they have to deal with, right? You'd expect this. Um, several times they come across uh, several larger groups of undead, maybe even 100, 100, 200 of them, which is a lot, but Menandra assures them is nothing compared to some of the hordes that her and Fenton saw before they got to Panamore uh, eight years ago. They're one of the first few people that came across the few refugees in Panama and very quickly took control. Not in a we're the boss kind of way, but we're the best trained to help you survive. And the people were happy for it. Um, but they, uh, they, had, they had come across them as well. They did not start Panama, uh, but they definitely got there early on. Um, let's see. Uh, specifically noted down, no Darsh, you can't have their bow. <laughs> <laughs> that written down here in the margin. You know, I, I have little side notes like that sometimes. Um, so for the next, like I said, it was almost a week. They're successful avoiding any type of undead. Uh, they majority, what few they did come across, and some of this I didn't make them roll. It was just, you came across a small group of six zombies with enough pre-planning. They were in your way. There was no way around. You went in and killed them very quickly. Um, with as many fighter and melee characters as they have, dandy with her backstab, because while that is really artery thing. In this situation, it's in the ear, back of the... It's skull stuff, you know what I mean? She's right up underneath the back of the neck, underneath where the skull is, up into the brain. I mean, it's things that... She, her backstab is incredibly helpful in these situations. Uh, then you've got Darsh, who can just lop a head off first swing. Mercy bashing her head. Ulrich beheading with his two swords. Uh, Fenton used the Warhammer, so like Mercy, it's all about a crunch of the brain. And then Menander is more of a stab through the face, because her... Uh, Menandra staff, which at this point is just a staff, or sorry, a spear. I don't want to say it's a spear that they learned during this part of the adventure was made for her by Fenton, who is also an expert weaponsmith. He was a weaponsmith in a dwarven kingdom, and he was known for his quality goods until uh, one day the thing happened, and there was a story, and I don't remember what it was, but something led him to the light, and the gods basically, he spoke to the god of light, asked him to come serve him, and he left his forge to go and fight for the light um, 
as a dwarven paladin for that dwarven kingdom and then eventually became part of the group where he met Menander and they've been friends for several hundred years. At that time, she was using uh, a really nice human-made spear, but it got broken in a battle. Uh, so as a gift, he managed to take some Celt wood from his homeland that he ha had with him. because he, Not in his house, in his place at the forge of the temple. Because he still lived in a... Uh, uh, like a fort. The place they're going to is a big thing on the top of a mountain. It's a big castle-like fort of the paladins. So he had some there. He didn't carry around all the time. And forged her this weapon um, of such quality that it counted as a magical weapon. Not that it is a magical weapon, per se, um, until Fenton cast uh, what little bit of spell, because even... As he, he imbued power into it that it did became like a holy blade. So it has a little bit of magic, but it doesn't have Menandra quality magic, if you know what I mean. But they do learn the story that that was made uh, for him, just like his hammer was made for him by his father, who was also a paladin, and he was like, I'm not going to live that life. I'm going to get rich making weapons and such. And I think if I remember correctly, his father died, and they brought bring him the hammer, and at that point he just, you know, snapped and he basically went out and took that hammer and found the bad dudes that had killed his father and just squished them and at that point became a pal and he's like I, I, I had I taken the path when my father was alive he still might be here uh, now I will use my skills and abilities and my father's hammer to protect others as I should have protected my father kind of thing so that was kind of his thing weight that he carried Menander's carrying the weight of she devoted her life to the light She's done everything to protect the world. And then when things went bad, the gods didn't even protect her children. And she had to watch them die. And she did watch them die. So that was really the falling of faith for her. Giving you a little bit more backstory on them. But it's about a week later before they run into their next actual situation. Um, and they're traveling across a relatively open area. And they've been trying to avoid these as much as they could. But sometimes there's really no choice. Um, they're actually going to be traveling across what are, or were, some fields, uh, like farm fields. And they could see in the distance, in rare situations, maybe the old barn or something that just on the, they're far enough apart that you could just see there's a small community of farms here. But it's all fields. As far as you can see, open area. They've got across it. There's no living crops there, so there's nothing to hide in. And they figure, okay, we're, they find the shortest path before they can see woods way on the other side. We've got to get across this open area. So they're making their way through this open area. And they're approaching what is obviously a farmstead. It's a small farmstead, uh, probably for a single family. There wasn't a whole lot of people in there. Hold on one second. Not going to lie, I think there's a dog outside my window and it just barked at me. There's a glass door here that leads out to my driveway. Okay, sorry, that startled me. Dog barking out of nowhere. Um, <gasps> direwolves. I'm just kidding. So, they, uh, no direwolves. <laughs> Hopefully. So, <laughs> they see this farmstead in the distance and they're like, okay, we'll try to get close to it, maybe use it, scan ahead a little bit, and uh, you'll see what's up there. As they're approaching the farmstead, Dandy is the first to notice it because uh, Artemis was looking in a different direction. But when she points it out to Artemis, sure enough, they could see something flying towards them. So it's coming from the south, heading north, whereas they're going south, and it is flying. And it appears to be large. Well, they're in this open area. 
There's not much else they can do. They start making a break for the farmstead, hoping they can get into it before whatever is flying in that direction could maybe see them. Uh, they're not far. So they hurry up and they get to the farmstead and they bust in and slam the doors behind them. They start bracing, trying to find a place to hide. The house has obviously been ransacked relatively, uh, probably by the dead. Maybe there's some blood smears on the floor, whatever the case is, you know. Uh, it's obviously not a nice house with all the doors were closed. And they start hiding and start looking out the windows. Now, about that time, the dead farmer comes out of the kitchen. Dandy hears him and calls out just in time for Ulrich to get in front of Artemis, who was the target, and now he's trying to hold back the dead farmer, and the uh, who's a big, big fat dude. Big fat dude. And then a little old lady zombie, who they can only assume is his wife, also comes stumbling in the room after them. So now they're trying to be quiet in this house, but they got two zombies to deal with. Because um, they didn't have time to search it. Because I'm a jerk like that. So they get in there, and immediately Ulrich is trying to hold this thing off. He he had his weapon sheathed, and he's trying to basically hold it, and the big fat dude's, even though he's a zombie, he's still got a lot of weight on his side. He's pushing down on Ulrich. Darsh runs over to help him, and um, Mercy comes over and, and basically deals with the the, the, the grandma-type care. She's like, eh! And Mercy's like, and just like crushes her head in. <laughs> Mercy's like, I'm not even playing with this. And literally just in one shot. These are not strong zombies. They weren't meant to kill the party. They were comedy relief. And the big one, Darsh comes up and pulls the thing off and he's like, I'm trying to char chew on Ulrich and he's got like fluids and stuff and Ulrich's like, ugh, ugh, just splattering and coughing and ugh. And Darsh goes and grabs it by the head and rips it backwards and the head comes off. And the thing's still choking Ulrich. And he's like, eh, and he throws it on the ground and, starts, and stomps on the head. The body's still choking Ulrich. Um, and at this point, Menander and Fenton grab it and pull it off and stab it and pin it down or whatever the case was and, until it stops moving. Uh, and then they, they hear something heavy hit the ground nearby. And everybody hides behind something or ducks underneath windows and such. And everybody goes quiet and hopes there are no more zombies in this house. Dandy, who's hidden very, very well in the shadows of a corner, because that's one of her skills, hiding shadows, can see out a window very easily and sees the large eye come across it and look inside. Bumping up against the wall, it doesn't try to break in, it just kind of peer inside for a second and then they can hear it circling the house a little bit, like it's searching for something. Then they hear again, it seems to be walking off a short distance. There was a barn not far from here, and it sounds like it's headed in that direction. Dandy decides to move very quietly to the window and see if she can get a look at it. It is not a dragon. It is a drake. So a drake is kind of like a small dragon. Um, you'll remember that uh, Draven's evil brother rode one back in the day. Um, but they normally don't have front arms. They have the back arms and the front arms are their wings uh, for the common drake. So... Uh, it's usually got like one talon on the end of the wing it can swing with, but it doesn't really have hands or arms of that nature. But it does have big claws on its feet, and it usually has a pretty uh, dangerous tail if you get behind it. Danny's able to see it move towards the barn, and it seems to be poking its head through some of the open sides because it's half fallen apart. And then it comes back again, and Danny hides very quickly to the side, and she can hear it 
outside again. She was able to see that this thing was clearly not alive. It's clearly missing pieces of scale and skin, and it was just bumbling around. But after a couple more minutes, they hear it take off and flapping. It, it appears to be continuing heading south, the direction they came from. This whole thing, this whole scenario, takes about 10 minutes. It's not very long. It lands, looks around a bit, takes off again. They decide to wait there a little bit longer to make sure it doesn't come back. They give it a good hour, they told me. They wanted to wait to make sure it didn't come back. But after an hour, it hadn't, and is now getting later in the day. They know they've got to get out of this house in this open area and get to the tree area where they can at least have maybe a little bit of cover before night falls. So they leave the house and continue heading south as quickly as they can. About that time. They're barely outside the house taking their first few steps when again they see several figures in the distance. Let me tell you how many figures. Um, that's the old couple. They see six figures. And as soon as they step out, they know they've been seen. And the six figures comes running and bounding at them very quickly. These are undead gnolls. If you don't know what a knoll is, uh, think the concept of a minotaur, but the head is a jackal. They're not as tall as minotaurs, of course. They're usually about six feet tall, thinner, but they're very fast. Uh, like a jackal or a hyena kind of thing is what they look like. Um, at least in traditional D&D, you play World of Warcraft, they're short little pugly guys. I've never understood that. But that's what they look like. They're like dogmen. Um, and they're naturally evil anyways, usually. Uh, but these ones are undead, and so they're unnecessarily evil. With no option, because the hyenas, they're actually faster than them, even dead, they have no choice but to enter into combat. The combat does not last very long, because, again, they're very, our heroes are very overmatched for a lot of the things that they come across in this area. Because you have to remember, when this story originally happened, they weren't there. Now think about that. Who would have been with Menandra and Fenton, if they decided to go south, maybe they would have went alone. Maybe they would have taken some of their soldiers, people who are weaker than them. What would that situation have been? They already don't know how much of the story they have changed, but it is something they're concerned with. Remember, they only get one chance at this. And Tobias is always, oh, we could do this, and told them, don't do that. That could change things. He's always warning them against certain actions. Luckily, they were pretty overpowered, and they managed to wipe these out very quickly. At this point, even Menander has come to accept Artemis and considers her a, a, a valuable ally. Uh, she, even though she's still not happy with the gods, she doesn't blame Artemis for that. Um, and Fenton, of course, say, and there's another follower of the god. And you can tell that in his mind, he's always hoping to get Menander back over there. You know what I mean? He's trying to wrangle her back into the clergy. Uh, but, but she's not going that far yet. Still doesn't like the gods, but she's okay with Artemis. Um... And they, they're definitely impressed with the combat abilities of our heroes that have joined up with them because they're pretty skilled. Over the next several weeks, they have a couple of other what we call random encounters, situations that they have to fight. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail in those other than to kind of give you just a brief idea of what happened because it's the same kind of situation. When I'm creating an adventure of this nature, luckily I have a world full of undead anything I want. Even if it's not in a monster book saying these are undead gnolls or undead centaurs. They didn't find centaurs. Using that as an example. 
I can say in this world there is some because everything's undead. So it gave me an opportunity to make some cool things that normally aren't undead as undead to make the party fight. Just to give them something that I may not be able to replicate on a normal merged worlds situation. Uh, and definitely the kind of thing that Dandy is learning from and can tell Michael about in their advent, you know, when, when he's alive. Hopefully. So, they continue traveling. So over the next couple of weeks, at one point, uh, after they got to that forest, they're traveling, they're hoping, they think that at the end of that, undead, undead, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> How long, much longer will this go, the stream? Uh, we got about another 42 minutes. I normally go till about 10.30. Um, or if you're wondering how long this adventure goes, it won't be done tonight, but we may get to the end of this chapter on Thursday, which I'm kind of kind of excited about. We may get to the big ending on Thursday. Another reason why I wanted to have Thursday this week, so you get two, two of these in, in one week. I'm excited about that. But while they are traveling through, one of the good things, there was a lake, a small lake where they were... Uh, around what was a, a large forest around it, and they were hoping, okay, cool, this is a situation where, uh, well, I'm sure we're not going to find any living you know, fish and stuff, but there's a lot of places around the lake, natural caves and things, that they could use to potentially hide in as they traveled around this lake through the area. It's a decently, hard, uh, decently large lake. Unfortunately, when they got there, they learned that the lake was much bigger than it should have been. And Menandra talks that far to the east, there was a large dam that was built centuries ago by the dwarves. And they can only assume that the dam has burst sometime in the last 10 years. And now the lake has overflowed into what was the land. And now they're going through a swamp instead of a forest area around a lake. So instead of the taking, they went this way on purpose to use the terrain to their advantage. And now they're stuck with it being used against them. Um, as they travel around the lake proper to try to get to where, because the, the marshy area is past the lake where they're trying to go to. As they're passing through the lake, they do get attacked by an undead lake monster. It's the Loch Ness Monster, but undead. I didn't make that up. That's an actual D&D creature. But I never got to use one before. So they do get attacked by the undead Nessie, for all intents and purposes. Um, again, because the water is overflowed into where it shouldn't be. Uh, they're still fighting in mud on the shores of a lake, and it was a very challenging fight for them. There was some damage dealt by them. They didn't lose anything important. I'm pretty sure that this is the fight where Mercy accidentally knocks Darsh unconscious. He, she rolled a one by trying to throw... It was a situation where the thing had backed out into the water a bit. She didn't have a ranged weapon, so what she does is she wheels back with her Morningstar and whips it end over end. She's learned to do that, but in the mud, she loses her balance because she rolled a one, and she throws it, and Darsh is in front of her facing away, pops him right in the back of the head, and brrr, he's in the ground. So Mercy's like, ah, pops it back in her hand and has to run forward to defend him while Dandy's trying to pull him on his back in the mud so he doesn't drown. It was a very funny situation caused by a one. And it's one in particular that I remember happening. It doesn't happen all the time, but when I run through here, I remember key ones. And literally, she's like, I'm going to whip it hand over hand because then I can just pour it back and just slips in the mud while she's doing it and got him square in the back of the head. 
just knocks the sense out of him. He's and he's down in the mud. And Dandy's trying to, well, she, Mercy's protecting the body from the undead lake monster, and everybody else is trying to help. Dandy's trying to pull his heavy body on his back so he's not drowning in the inch of water. What happens if you get a negative one because of a modifier? Um, second edition really didn't work that way. So, at least this is how we did it in second edition, and it's probably how I'm going to run it in this one. A one, let me phrase this. A 1 is always a miss, and a 20 is always a hit. Let me explain that. Let's just say you're fighting a creature that has so much armor and so much power that when you add its armor class, you would actually need to roll a 24 to hit it. You have a 20-sided dice. It is impossible for you to roll 24. The thing is so strong, your dice is incapable of hitting it. That's silly. You may not do as much damage. You may not pierce his armor. Anybody can score a hit. So a 20 is always a success. At the same time, if you're a minotaur and you're fighting a one-hit point kill kobold who's two feet tall and unarmored and all you have to do is flick him with your wrist and he's dead, you roll a one, you slip while trying to do it, fall on the ground, hit your rock, and you've knocked yourself unconscious. So... Doesn't matter how strong you are, there's always the chance you're going to miss or mess up. And it doesn't matter how weak you are, there's always the chance you're going to score a lucky hit. So 20 is all, it doesn't matter with negatives and over numbers, 20 is always a hit, 1 is always a miss. And if you roll a 20, I'm going to let you roll the critical hit dice. Because if you manage to get a lucky hit, you might as well benefit from the lucky hit. But if you roll a 1, I don't care how good you are, you're going to roll that critical fumble dice. And in this situation, hitting this undead monster was almost nothing for Mercy. She rolled a one and rolled hit ally. She slipped in the mud and knocked Darsh unconscious. How did Darsh's player react to this? Darsh's character uh, is the same one who plays Artemis. And she was always like, really? Because Darsh always is the one that gets hit by ally. And we don't do it on purpose. If you roll hit ally, then I say, okay, here's the allies. One through six. Roll a six-sided. See who you hit. Darsh literally gets hit 75% of the time. I don't know why it went that way, but it always made sense. He's the biggest dude, and he's the most likely to be in the way. You know? Because when you're fighting, and you're in melee combat against something, and you're dodging things, and and you go to stab, well, now Darsh is trying to dodge the other tentacle, and he gets in your way, you accidentally stab him. Or Dandy, or whatever the case may be. Um, but for some reason, most of the time, Darsh got the heck beat out of him. Going all the way back to the very first adventure, Way, way back, when they're sitting in the very first inn before they started their first story, when I told you about these guys, Dandy was juggling butter dishes, rolled a one, and it landed on Darsh's head and butter ran all down his face. It became a running gag about the butter dish. Uh, yes, Darsh and Artemis had the same player, and Mercy and Dandy had the same player. I had two girls in the group at this point. I started with four players. And that's why we had eight characters. Zarin, the mage, and Fig were played by uh, a guy in the group. And Willow and Shadow were played by another girl in the group. And then the group kind of fell apart. And when we came back to play it, I had just the two girls. And the other guy and the other girl were no longer a part of that. So when that happened, 
That's when I brought them back from the dead, but only these ones could be saved. That's why Fig became an NPC, Zarin became a villain, and Shadow and Willow became fodder. But yes, everybody, I, get, I let them all run two characters, because uh, I was excited to let them play, because I hadn't played in a year or two at this point, when I started rolling these guys. And made the minor mistake of, now I have eight characters to run. And a couple NPCs like Michael show up real early on. And then we got Moog, and I'm like, this is too many people for one group at this level. And that's why they had to split up to go after the artifacts. It was my way of leveling out the parties and making them a little bit better. So each person, one of their characters was in each group. So we still got, no matter what, they all got to play. But for a couple of weeks, we'd play one group. And then a couple of weeks, we'd play the other group. We'd go back and forth. Um... But yes, everybody had two characters. Darsh and Artemis had the same young lady playing her, and um, Dandy and uh, Mercy are played by the same person. They managed to successfully defeat the Undead Lake Monster uh, and keep Darsh from uh, drowning. You can play two characters, depends on how many you have, but the more players, you, more characters you have, uh, the downsides I find with that is when somebody's playing two characters, one character is going to become their primary. That's the character they're going to like the most. That's the one when you're having a conversation they're going to talk as. And normally, that means that the other character is going to suffer for it. They're not going to get as much of a backstory. They're not going to roleplay as much. They have less development. Um, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but in my experience, that's usually what happens. That's why I normally don't do it. Uh, but with this group, I decided to give them a shot. And it worked out pretty well. But early on, Shadow got all the attention and Willow didn't. You know, uh, that's why I had to start making situations where Willow had to be played. Splitting them up allowed that to happen. Um, but yeah, again, you can do it any way you like. I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, for the large-scale campaign that I was designing, and I was throwing a bunch of NPCs in there, the party ended up being 10 and 12 people very quickly. A combat role where 10 and 12 people all have to take their turns to fight, you have to start throwing a lot of villains against them or a lot of monsters at one time to make it challenging. And then you're running into the difference, okay, now am I putting in monsters that are too powerful for them? So balancing challenge versus abilities becomes more difficult the more people are there. So that's my spiel on that. And hello, Ben. Thanks for coming by. Okay. I'm going to speed up here because we got about 30 minutes left or so, and there's uh, one point in particular I'd like to get to. So... After that, they ended up uh, one other come a, a week uh, as they're exiting that area, almost out. Uh, they did end up having to fight some mud zombies, which were literally zombies that were in the muds of the swamp. And as they came through, a small horde of zombies literally come up out of the water, and now they're trying to fight in the mud again against these things. Uh, that one, that one took a lot longer, although they didn't take as much damage, mostly because Mercy didn't hit anybody on her team. Um, but it, it was a longer combat because it involved a lot more checks I, 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 you, to say standing and things, do things grabbing their feet. So that one became more of just a challenging fight, not for damage, but for surviving it for numbers and the physical terrain that they had to deal with. Um, but those were the fights they dealt with over the next uh, couple of weeks. So as I said, it was going to take about three weeks to get to the temple that they were going to. So I want to describe this as accurately as possible because it matters. So I want you to imagine for me, again, they're coming up a hill, right? They're in an area now that's become hilly and a little bit mountainy, but mostly hilly. And they're coming up over a very large hill. They've been going up it for 
a couple hours. So it's very swooping up. And Fenton and Menandra have told them that the small mini mountain that their temple is on is on the other side of this hill. There's like a you know, land and then on the, you, you'll be able to see the, uh, the mountain with the, the thing on it. So they're coming up this hill. So as you're coming up this hill, the first thing you see is, of course, the top of the mountain. Right? That's going to poke up over the hill. I'm going to read to you this next segment. Mind you, it's been three to four weeks since they left Panama. As you climb the steep hill, you can finally see the top of the Mountain of Light. Even from here, you can make out the temple at its peak. The temple seems to radiate a soft light, cutting into the skies of gray. It is getting close to dark at this point. And I apologize. There it be, says Fenton, a tear in his eye. Our home still stands. Even Menandra seems filled with hope at the sight of it. Maybe you're right, Fenton, she said, placing her hand on his shoulder. Maybe our brothers do still live. Fenton places his hand on hers and says, Aye, lass, hope exists. Let's go meet it. You continue to climb the hill, finally reaching its top, and before you is a great valley leading to the base of the mountain. One look and your hopes fall. Throughout the valley, crowding the base of the mountain, roam thousands of the dead. They mill about, trying to reach the road winding up and around the mountain that would lead to the temple. It is lost then, says Menandra, defeated in her voice. We have failed. You all stand in silence, staring at the huge army of the damned before you. No, says Tobias. Maybe not. Look, the road itself is clear. The dead don't seem to be on the mountain itself at all. The gods protect it and keep it safe, says Fenton, hopefully. Maybe they protect our brothers as well. Aye, says Menandra. But how the hell do we get to them? So imagine this. You come up to the top of a large hill and all you see are thousands of the dead surrounding this mountain that comes out of a valley. Almost looks like a finger sticking up out of a out of a bowl. Odd description, but to give you the idea. Finds an empty hope. That'd be funny. Uh, and then on this mountain there's a windy road, and at the top is this the home of these paladins, the, the mountain of light, I believe I called it. Yes. How in the world are we gonna cross these? <laughs> it's about that time Dandy's like, well we got this carpet. Because they hadn't used it at this point, but they said, we've got a flying carpet. Throw everybody in the chest of holding. Dandy hops on it. Zips us over there. We skip them. We're good to go. Fenton and Marlon are like, is it really that easy? We just hop on it and fly over? And Artemis is like, yes, we have used this to frustrate our Dungeon Master's plans many times. The smartass actually said that. And I laugh because it's true. I had a habit early on of making ways of challenges and forgetting they had that stupid carpet. And like, oh, we'll just fly over. And I'm like, oh, I forgot you can fly. <laughs> but in this situation, they were intended to fly. So they, in fact, do that exact thing. Everyone climbs in the chest of holding except for Dandy and Darsh who decides he wants to be out there so carrying the chest. So if something does happen and they 
there are undead on the top. Dandy's not there by herself. Darsh can maybe help with the chest of holding. He'll protect it, but he can always give it to Dandy if they need to land, and he has to hold some off or whatever the case is. He, they didn't want Dandy out there all by himself. A rare stray bird runs into her forehead, knocks her unconscious. They die of lack of oxygen inside the chest of holding. Very rarely did they like to leave only one person outside the chest, because you never know. Um, you know, they might have got Fabio'd, and that bird hit him in the face in the roller coaster. You never know. So Darsh and Dandy were out there. Now, as they're flying over the valley, at first, they don't really go that high. I mean, they're like, we're going flying over top of this army. They're probably going to see us either way. So they're flying not that high. But then they start to get shot at. And bows and crossbow, or arrows and crossbow bolts start flinging up. And they very quickly ascend up higher. There are things down there that not only can see them, are smart enough to use weapons. Now, I actually made some rolls there to see whether I hit one or not. And I was, for their luckily case, uh, for their, uh, successfully, I did not. I tried, though. I really did. Um, but they fly over, and the temple itself, I say it's a temple. It's a fort more than anything else, but they call it a temple. Had a big stone wall at the top. So the single road winds up to get to it, and then there's a big wall that you'd have to, with the big wooden gates that are easily defended with people on top and there's arrow notch holes and all that kind of stuff. Very defendable position. This is not your classic temple. It is in fact a fort of paladins who are really good warriors. So they've got that. Our people just fly right over. As they got close, they were worried about some kind of shield. Although Menandra, they asked about that. Menandra's like, we've never had anything like that before. But, I mean, I don't know. So they're careful. They get close. Darsh throws a rock or something. It goes through fine. So they fly in. And sure enough, land in the courtyard. And then open the chest hole in quickly and start having people out. Which is good because immediately they hear voices call out. Um, as they land, someone, you hear someone yelling from the gate behind them. They didn't realize someone was up there watching. And... The doors open, and several more men come running out. Five in all live here. One on the gates comes running down to meet as well, and the other four came from the, from the actual uh, fort itself, the main building. All of them are human, and they're all relatively young men, probably in their, comparatively, late 20s, early 30s. You know, compared to Fenton and half of them, they're about our characters' ages at this point. The, older of, the oldest of the five comes up and immediately they see Fenton and they recognize they're wearing the same armor. These are paladins just like Fenton. And seeing Fenton, who they probably know of, even if he doesn't remember them, you know what I mean? They probably have heard of Fenton, the dwarven paladin who whooped a lot of booty back in the day. I mean, that kind of thing happens. Uh, their leader is a, is a gentleman named Christopher Pollock. The other four are Edward McWayne, McWan, sorry, McWan, Morrison Turvis, Victor Winchester, and Mavis Dumont. I wanted to have kind of fancy names for these guys because they're paladins. And they have been they've been living in here, this temple, for ten years since all this started. They're so excited to see Menander because they know who Menander and Fenton are. Menander and Fenton have a faint recollection of these guys would have been squires when they were here last, uh, but they remember them a little bit. 
And they start telling the tales of where, where have you been, where have we been, and our characters are kind of hanging out hearing that. Menander, of course, shares their story, and Fenton does. And they say that they were here, and there was actually about 25 of them. Um, no, sorry, 30 of them that were in here when all this hit. Because the, their, their order is probably 50 or 60, but like Menander and Fenton were out in the world when all this happened. They don't all hang out here. They're out doing paladin good stuff. And the 30 that were here stayed here for about five to six years. And this whole time, the army of the undead down just keeps getting stronger and stronger, but something is not letting them come up the hill. The road itself, the zombies, everything just stops and mills like it can't go any further. Um, and it's been the paladin's belief that the gods themselves are protecting this because it is the home of the Stone of Light, which they still really don't know what that is, but everybody else does. And they're like, this is, you know, it's been protecting us. Now, about three years ago, some of our brothers decided to try to leave to see if they could get help. Because as far as they know, they don't know how widespread this is. They've been stuck in this valley for 10 years. Is, is there undead here, but maybe forces out somewhere else they can go and get help to come back? Um, whatever that may case be. So they decided to try to break through the line. They gathered up what horses they had. They armored and stuff. They left 10 behind to protect some of the younger ones and such. They took their best to try to break through. Because even the younger ones are still paladins. they still got some skills, right? These are no slouches when it comes to combat, and they've got their paladin abilities and such. The 20 tried to break through the army, and they got about a third of the way through the valley before they all fell. Just swamped. Because they looked at them, and for years, like, oh, okay, they're zombies. We can get maybe through some zombies, use our holy auras. But then the arrows started flinging, and the weapons, and like, these are armed. There's actually some skill in there. They're not just mindless zombies. And that wasn't to be expected. Because imagine, if you will, that you're charging through a room full of zombies that all have bows and arrows aimed at you. This is the one force that doesn't care if they hit other people in their party. So, 100 zombies all shoot arrows at you, not caring if they hit anybody else. It's not even an aim game. Some of those are going to hit you. More will hit your allies, but it doesn't hurt them. They're already dead. So unfortunately, they fell. Over the last three years, five others died of illnesses, sicknesses, things of that nature. Food uh, is at a minimum. They do have a decent water supply from a deep well. Um, although the water has a bit of a funky taste to it, they boil it before drinking it to be careful. Um, but that is something that the well still is providing water. The, as the same thing Panama had, over time the ground is not growing things like it used to. Almost like the ground itself is dying. Uh, and crops are growing less and smaller and less of a yield. They're having the same problem with the gardens here. The first year or two it wasn't a problem. They were growing lots of vegetables and potatoes and having french fry nights and whatever they needed to do. They had plenty of food to live on. Um, they ran out of meat relatively early, but they had a big wine cellar. And they had, you know, in a mountain, you picture, they have a cool area underneath where they can keep food longer. Jarred food, you know, they would have pre prepared for a siege, right? These are people who are smart like that. No one expects a siege to go on 10 years with the army of the undead when your ground stops growing. So all the seeds and things they had to last a long-term siege eventually stopped growing or are growing much, much less. So for every two potatoes they, they plant, they're getting 
three potatoes. You know what I mean? It's it's not a big tr yield, whereas before it was a lot. So they're having to ration, and you can they can tell by looking at them that all of them look gaunt. They're clearly thinner than they should be. They're still in okay shape. Hold on, I'm sorry. One cat attacked another cat, knocked my headset off my work computer, and they scared each other. It's okay. Uh, sorry about that. Um, but you know. They're still trying to stay in shape. They still have a regiment. They still follow orders. They have their morning prayers. They do their thing. They take turns on the wall looking for hope or help or whatever and also to watch to see if the undead finally break up and get in there. Um, so no one has survived getting out. The problem they have is it they, the feeling that the dead are getting closer. Like before they couldn't get within a thousand feet of the base of the mountain. And it was 900 feet. Now they're at the very base of the road, but they can't come up it. They are slowly, very slowly getting closer. Um, let's see. They were told to defend the stone while others went for help, and they have stuck by that creed, deciding that uh, instead of trying to make a, an attempt to leave, which they would have died probably anyways, they're, they'll stay here until they're gone, to the last breath, protecting the stone. Um... Let's see. Now, Fenton, at least as well known, is now the eldest and elder of the Order, which technically puts him in charge. He was actually a paladin even before Menander was. Um, Fenton and Menander, they, they start, they like, okay, we need to talk. And they go off and they talk and they're chatting for a minute. And they even leave um, our heroes out of the conversation. But they step off by their own and they introduce themselves. And then Artemis whips out the, you know, the chest of holdings already open, goes down, and they bust out some pickled fish. And these guys get a real meal for once. And they're like, here, food and water. And they're ecstatic for it. You know, Artemis doesn't use any of her magic to make the gruel food. They give them real food. They get to cook up some fish and such. And you can imagine, you know, eat slowly. Your stomach's going to hurt if you eat too quickly. You haven't had a real meal in a while. But... Pop token, thank you very much for signing back up. <laughs> Could the stone be the source of the undead? Maybe the source of the power inside of an under the spear, not the person? Well, I guess we'll have to see. <laughs> so Fenton comes back, and basically the uh, the paladins are sitting there now, like, finally someone's here who can tell us what to do. What do we do? You know, do we stay here? Say the word, we'll stay here till we die. Do we go? Do we try to make a break? What are we gonna do? Fenton comes back and he and Menandra had talked and Fenton just tells them that they won't that they're not going to be staying and that they're the paladins are coming with them. They're not going to leave them to die on die on this mountain. He says, uh, you're going to accompany us where we go next. And you can tell the young men are relieved because nobody wants to abandon their post, but somebody shows up with authority and lets you leave a hopeless situation. This is the first hope they've had in 10 years. So um, they're like, okay, good stuff. But Fenton says turns to Menander and, and says, and they've talked, he goes, but we're not leaving right away. He goes, I want, I want time to pray at the stone. Which is something that, you know, only the order is allowed to do, and being a high-ranked dude, he can definitely pull that rank now if he wants to. Um, Menander has agreed to give him one day, but then after that point, they've got to go. They can't stay here. She's like, I feel right now, and she goes, looking around, seeing the undead, she goes, I, we can't stay here longer than a day. I don't care what's going on. Fenton agrees, and he says a day is, is all the time he wants. 
And so Fenton goes into the internal chapel that only the blessed are allowed to go into. So our heroes don't ever get to see the stone. <laughs> they never did get to see it or see exactly what it was. Was it even a stone? Was it a gem? They have no idea. I never let them know. Frustratingly so. They, they never could officially ask. And I, they never came up with a question that got an answer. So, Fenton goes in and locks himself inside. He will be entering into deep prayer and he will be staying in there for 24 hours that he's been given by Menander. Because while well, he's kind of in charge. Did you know yourself? Oh yeah, I've, I've always known. I always have tons of stuff prepared in case they do come up with a way to find out. I want to be prepared. I always have backup plans as much as possible. So if I, if I mention something in the story, 99% I have a storyline for it in case they decide to follow that thread instead of the one I'm giving them. They're in town and the bartender girl decides, which are, uh, there's a bartender and there's a, a serving girl and, and she serves them a drink and one of them starts to think she sounded kind of fishy. She, there's nothing wrong with her. <laughs> but I know that she's married to the blacksmith and they live outside of town with their kid. In case they decide to go somewhere, I know their link. You know what I mean? What is it? Clearly is relevant to the story and what specifically if they never knew themselves. It's actually a sword. It's actually a sword with a crystal in its pommel. The crystal itself is uh, said to be a part of the light itself. Uh, at the beginning of the forging of the universe, Manon, uh, not Menandra, um, Manara, goddess of light, uh, broke out several pieces of her own essence, pure light, and placed them into the universe. And a piece of those was found uh, basically in an asteroid landed, it was forged into the pommel of this weapon of the original person who created this knighthood, this group of paladins, the original descendant. Um, it is a holy artifact, blessed of the gods, and at this point, it's like a sword in the stone concept, except anybody can pull it out if they need to. The sword itself, no powers itself, other than to grant blessings. It's not a sword plus two, plus five, holy avenger, none of that stuff. The gem is the power. The sword's just a regular good quality sword. It'll cut somebody. The gem is where the power is. And it does give some abilities to its wielder, but only ones chosen by the god can take it. And no one has been chosen by the god since the original. So the storyline was that no one will ever take this sword from this place because only the original bearer can bear it. It was created for them. So it is a sword, but the but the, it's the gem in the sword that's what caused it. They the whole thing is known as the that's the name of the sword. It's the gem that gives it its powers, though. Like if they tried to take the gem out of the sword, the gem would lose its power. The gem has to be part of the sword. It is a single unit. Um, but the gem is the source of the power. But its conduit is the sword. You could probably take it, and put it into another sword. Maybe, but again, I had a whole thing about it. it was Manara herself had it commissioned to give to this person in a land of darkness. It was made for this warrior, for him specifically. He then took the sword. The sword, again, he was the first paladin of this order. And he used that sword to basically free this land of darkness. Uh, but because the sword was made for him, no other person was ever able to wield it. Although, very often, high-level paladins and clerics can pray to it and use it as a way to commune with the goddess of light. If that makes sense. She'll send her power through it 
in this place. It basically was put in this stone by the first paladin, the guy who had it originally, and no one's ever tried to touch it since because no one's supposed to. It's not intended for that. And they don't take it with them. None of these guys are that guy. That was the lore I had behind it. I didn't flesh it out a whole lot. I had a guideline in case I needed to use it. Ended up needing to, so it's just kind of in the back of my mind, the basic gist of it all. We'll continue. So while the um, Fenton is in there, chilling, having his prayer time, uh, the Paladins are given information about the outside world. Right? They're told about what's happened. Because the Paladins don't know. They've always had the hope that maybe there's lands out there we're still okay. And when they figure out how widespread it is, they're also decimated. Just very, very sad sauce. Um, hello. And uh, they got some meal. They hang out. Everybody rests. Trying to get some sleep. Um, it is... I would say, if I remember correctly, when they got there, it was very early in the morning. It was like 4 o'clock. Thank you, Adam, for the sub. I appreciate that. So they got there like 5 o'clock in the morning. It was like early morning when they finally got in there. So they have to stay till 5 o'clock the next morning. That's Fenton was given 24 hours. So they're kind of hanging out in there, trying to get rest throughout the day. The Paladins are packing up what stuff they can. Uh, they're trying to boil as much water to refill the water supply. What food there is, they're moving into the chest of holding. There's no sense leaving anything behind. There's a good chance no one will ever come back here. Our heroes know this stuff's going to be gone when they leave the book anyways. Why waste it? So they all gather up all the foods and stuff that they can get. Then they decide to get some rest, get up in the middle of the night, try to use the darkness to help cover them flying out. Everybody's going to be inside the chest of holding. It's important to remember, the more people that are in the chest of holding, the shorter time period you have before you have to open it again. It only contains a certain amount of oxygen. And every person takes out 30 minutes of that off of that time. So the more people you put in there, quicker you need to get it open, or everybody inside is going to suffocate and die. So these are one of the situations they're throwing five other people in there, Fenton and them, their whole party. There's probably only going to be two or maybe three on the rug at this time. Why couldn't they leave it open? The chest of holding can't be open when it shrinks. You have to close it to shrink it. And you can't pick it up when it's not shrunk. It can only be moved when it's shrunk, but it can't be shrunk if it's open. Remember, it shrinks down to a little box. And if it's open, if you look down and see many people, that's not how it's meant to work. It can only move when it's small, um, and it can only be small when it's closed. That's the thing. Because they don't shrink. The doorway into this pocket outside of their dimension shrinks. Inside to them, it's the same size. There's still the same ladder going up to the same size chest. Open up the door, and it's normal to them. As I said, they had until about five. It's about midnight of the next night after they spent their whole day loading up and doing all that kind of stuff. When about that time, a lot of about that times in these adventures, when about that time, the guard on duty, one of the paladins whose job it is to watch the gate this time of the night, rings the bell. Everybody comes running to see what that is. Everybody jumps out of their bed, get their rest. Um, and unfortunately, what they've sighted is something flying. Our heroes run up to the battlements and look out as well, and sure enough, in the distance, kind of flying around the mountain, 
they see what appears to be, to Dandy, the same Drake that they'd seen a couple of weeks earlier. Although this time, there appears to be a rider on its back. Paladins ask, should we shoot at it? Menander's like, don't waste your arrows at this point. Don't waste your cross... Well, they're all crossbows, rarely bows. Don't waste your bolts at this point. Let's wait and see what happens. Intelligent. It's staying far enough away you can't see what's riding it. You can only see there's a shape of... a regular man-shaped looking person on it. And it circles and circles and then eventually lands down on the ground in front of the road. Now, as it's landing, the dead move out of the way. They part to give place for this drake to land. And when it does, the rider climbs off, stands at the base of the road. And you see him start to move his hands in intricate patterns. After a moment or so, Menander's like, damn, we should have shot. It appears he's casting a spell. A drake is like a dragon, but smaller, less intelligent. It doesn't have front arms. It has Its wings are its front arms. It usually has one little hook at the thing it can swipe with. Uh, not as intelligent. Uh, Draven's evil brother rode one back in the day. Um, still a good-sized creature. Wait, twice the size of a horse. The rider appears to be casting a spell, and then after a few moments, there's a loud shattering noise all around them. Almost like a huge glass dome has been exploded. Everyone kind of winches their ears because it sounds like something smashed, but they don't see anything. Looking down at the base of the mountain, they see the rider begin walking up the road and the dead walking behind him. Menander is like, get your weapons ready, we got to get ready to go. And you hear her running off and banging on the door where Fenton is. Remember, he locked himself in. And she's banging for a few minutes while everybody's packing up, getting ready to go. We're like, are we leaving? Are we leaving? And she comes up, he's not opening the door. I don't know if he can hear me. If he's, if he's completely in prayer, he may have no idea that I'm banging on the door. There's no way in there once it's locked. Tobias is like, I could. She's like, trust me. Stronger than you have tried. You cannot get in there when it's locked from the inside. Prepare your weapons. We have to hold off until Fenton comes out. She's not happy about it. Paladins start grabbing their crossbows and things like that. And everybody starts getting... And she orders them down from the battlements. Break the wall. Oh no, it's thick. Thick. And you understand, these guys are spellcasters as well. Paladins have defensive magic that would have been cast on that. It's a holy place. It's protected. That's why, again... Gods are protecting the area. This was strong enough to break that spell, but... They're not getting into the room. I made that very clear. Because some things are impossible. So at first, a couple of the paladins try shooting at the thing. One gets a lucky hit, but it seems to just bounce off. And I, I was calling him the rider, but let's just say the, the guy is now walking up there. Bounce off him like he doesn't even notice. Menander tells him not to waste their weapons. Or their ammo. Because they do have limited ammo. And they're kind of hanging up there. And as the person comes walking up, he stops a distance from the gate and again becomes casting a spell. Menander calls everybody down. She has a fear she knows what's going to happen. And sure enough, she's correct. Everybody readies for, for charge and what's going on when sure enough, 
the doors themselves bust. These are big, thick wooden doors that have been there for centuries. And they just, they don't shatter, they don't explode, but they crack into chunks and they bend and they twist and they rip kind of the side like two hands are grabbing in and going like this. And they just rip a hole in the center, more than enough size for someone to walk through. And sure enough, someone does. As the dark shadowy figure walks through the gates into the courtyard, waves of fear wash over you and your hearts fill with dread. I don't say that because they're afraid. Literally, a magical fear washes over them. Dandy, unaffected. The creature wears plate mail that resembles the armor worn by the paladins around you, but it is black and twisted. No face can be seen through the blackness, only two red glowing eyes. Revenant, no. This is called... Well, let's see. Never again did I think I would walk these grounds, says the Death Knight. Death Knight. These are one of the bads. When I say the bads, there are certain monsters in Dungeons & Dragons that are known as big boss monsters. A vampire would be one. A, a vampire lord. Regular vampires, not so much. A mind flayer, or an elithid. A beholder. Dragons, of course, and a Death Knight. Death Knights are on that high list. So he says, Never again did I think I would walk these grounds, says the Death Knight. Van Maren, whispers Menandra. The Death Knight bows low. You honor me, milady, with your memories. A memory most foul, curses Menandra. You were a traitor. How many innocent lives were lost because of you, demon? You abandoned the light and chose to walk the path of darkness because a death knight is, in fact, a fallen knight or fallen paladin. The death knight chuckles, sending chills down your spine. I'd not be so quick to judge, my lady. I can see you also are no longer a servant of the light. Your path may lead you to the shadows, just as it did to me. Never, cries Menandra. I will never betray the ones I love. So be it then, says the servant of darkness. Then you shall die like all others on this dead world. My master's will shall be complete and absolute, and there is nothing you can do to stop him. And my players knew what a death knight was. If you've ever read Dragonlance novels, you know what a death knight is. One of the scariest things to face in all of the in the uh, Dragonlance novels was Lord Soth, the death knight, who is even big for a death knight. So for a death knight to have a master, immediately my players knew about that. They, they, they immediately realized that's a problem. Because a death knight can very often be a TPK, total party kill. Death Knight has been known to wipe out a D&D party in times. But again, I never set out to kill anyone. I wouldn't have put them here if I didn't think there was a chance they could survive. That's how D&D works. My characters were at a level enough that I felt it was time they really had something challenging to fight against. 
You know, because the Tanari back in Kroniar was such a slouch. <laughs> Not Kroniar, uh, Corman. <laughs> so the battle begins, and they start fighting. Now, the Death Knight has several weapons. Number one, fear. He gives off a natural fear, which makes most other creatures have a negative. Makes it harder to hit him and such. Artemis is able to cast a blessed spell, which helps her, but she's not strong enough to wave it off of everyone else. Dandy even gets a little bit of the heebie-jeebies for potentially what could be the first time in her life because it's a magical fear, but even... So she's a little... Effect, but not enough to affect her roles, but even her, she's a bit nervous. The paladins, not Menandra, but the other five paladins, you can tell that they're fighting against it. The fact that they are paladins and are servants of the light, they're feeling... They're getting a little bit of protection here, but this is still a really big bad. It is not just a slouch. And we're going to run a few minutes long again tonight. I keep doing that. I apologize. This battle begins. And he has fights. And he has spells. And he has abilities. He could summon the drake. He didn't. All the dead are standing outside the gate. He didn't even bother to bring him in. He doesn't need them. But he's also not an idiot. Artemis and Tobias are his first two attacks. It goes right after them with a spell. Expecting that, the heroes are set to, to defend them. But some spells come at them. I believe he used an ice spell, that, like an ice spear thing that Darsh managed to deflect with his shield, but took some damage instead. And the battle begins. Now, while this is going on, every couple of rounds, Menandra and this Van Maren are yelling stuff back and forth alluding to each other's pasts and stuff. They clearly knew each other. Had no time where they were romantic interest. He was a member of this order who betrayed them. Many lost their lives, and he turned into a death knight upon his death, cursed because of what he did. So now he's a walking dead. He was not created by all this. He would have been a death knight before this. Death knights are created under special circumstances. So the world being taken over by the dead, he would have already been on that path. As they're fighting and they're going back and forth, every couple of rounds I have something that I would I would tell them. And I don't have it written down like I do as a read it to, but I had it in bullet notes. Certain things like... And a lot of it, he's trying to get the... Um, trying to get the, 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 the information to the characters that I needed them to have at this point. So they're... She says, uh, uh, whoever your master is, when we're done with you, we'll find him. And he's like, he's like, and he literally calls it out. He goes, do you really think someone like I would follow someone unless I knew they, they were more powerful than I? You won't survive this. Trust me, you're not going to survive him. Never ever says what he is. But the one thing that came out in that battle um, is... He, he ended up having... I forget, I, I, I made up at the time. I didn't have the actual wording, but I have the word that's important. And he says, basically, he goes, when my lord rose from inside Shiraz and brought the death of the world with him, and now nothing can stop him. That's an important point to the story. Our characters didn't know that at the time, but what they would find out in the near future is Shirash is actually Mount Shirash. And it is the largest volcano mountain in the land of Shorn. That area where the dead started coming from. Huge volcano in the middle of it. 
No one lived near it at all because it was all volcanic and lava and stuff. So by saying my master rose from there, that kind of gave them the hint, okay, this is where that dude is hanging out. And that's what the part of that conversation was supposed to be during battle. Now, during the battle, one of the paladins jumps in to save Menandra. Menandra had been knocked down by Van Maren and was about to like just skewer her with the sword. Um, and our heroes are stuck in a spot. Is this how she dies? Do we help her? Do we not help her? Because they keep getting stuck in that spot, right? Is this the battle? Is this where we need to be? And so it really made things complicated for them in most battles where Menander got in trouble. But one of the paladins jumps in, and I have the name of the one it was. I had him circled. Um, uh, give me a second. Uh, it was uh, Mavis Dumont jumps jumps in between and starts fighting to save him. And Mavis gets a good hit in on him. Like a real good hit for, a, you know, he's a paladin, but he's not that high of a level paladin. He gets a real good hit on him. And Van Maren stumbles back after the hit, surprised. Because these are still people of the light. And at this moment he realizes that even these little goofers could be dangerous. And so he takes his hand up and he points at him. And he says die. There are spells in Dungeons and Dragons called Power Word. Power Word Stun. Power Word Blind. Power Word Sleep. A spell incredibly powerful, the higher level you get. And when that spell is cast, all you have to do is point and say the word, and that happens. He points at this young man and says, die. And that man literally fell over dead. There's no saving throw. There's nothing to save him, even protected by the light. That spell is one of the most powerful spells in 2nd edition. There's new stuff. I'm still learning. 2nd edition, one of the most powerful spells that you can have. And a Death Knights have it. And they don't always just have it once, depending on the level of the Death Knight. So one of these literally falls over dead. Angry, Mananda and the heroes charge in. There is no live, sadly, because that's only clerical healing magic, and this is a wizard spell, technically. A power kill is a wizard's spell. Uh, at back in second edition, there were no healing spells for wizards. There were not a single one. There were spells that would give you temporary, make it make you feel like you did, but then it goes away and you feel like crap. There's no real healing. Fifth edition again is very different. I'm still learning that, but this was a wizard spell and one of the abilities that Death Knights have. It's the one scariest ability that Death Knights really have is the power word kill because they literally pick somebody and go, you. Um, and there's not much can be done against it. The fight begins again and they're attacking and they're fighting and a couple more people get hurt. Uh, Dandy got hurt really bad again in this fight. Darsh, surprisingly, took almost no hits even though he jumped in and was doing a lot of the damage. Um, ben Marin was very much targeting Clerics with spells and such when he could. And you could tell he got angry and wasted it on this night because he would have much rather done that to the cleric. Although clerics have a little bit more potential ability to survive that. Light and healing being the two best. Um, but he popped it on the little dude, so they got they lost one of their five paladins. There's no bringing him back. 
Dandy got hurt quite a bit. Mercy got hurt decently. Darsh was doing damage, but he was targeting the Paladins and the Clerics more than anything else. And Tobias was also not holding back in this situation. And he'd yell, get the hell out of the way, fireball. I mean, he would... He was taking shots that potentially... Potentially could have damaged people, but there was there was no chance. They had to take that gamble. A wish can't do three things: make someone love you, bring the dead back to life, and you can't wish for more wishes. That's it. No, you, you can't do those. Just like Aladdin, the genie rules: can't make someone love you, can't bring someone back from the dead. Um, so the battle is going on, but Van Morin is doing very well. And then about that time. He'd taken a couple of hits. He yells something out relatively unintelligible. And the dead start coming through the gate. This is an added problem. Immediately, they're like, oh, we've got this to it. We've got to take him down. But he's seems like he's somewhat controlling the dead. But we know he's not the big boss. So even with killing him, is that going to stop the dead? Probably not. This is what the, I asked. This, what are your thoughts? What do you want to do? This is the conversation they had. They, their characters were yelling, do we target him? Do we go after the dead? I don't think it's going to stop him. And he's like, ha ha, I won't. And that type of thing. Because I converse as the bad guy. I'm willing to throw some cool one-liners out when I'm punching your face. Especially if I roll well. I'm like, ha ha, that'll teach you. You know, things like that. I'll, I'll do that. Um, but the fight is going on and it's getting harsh, because now the undead are coming in, and uh, some of the squishies, which in this situation are the paladins, and uh, Tobias are having to now focus on them. No, sweetie, can't come up. Starting to focus on them to keep them from now overwhelming everyone else. And that goes on for two rounds. At the beginning of the second round, the zombies are where they're in melee range. And then about that time, it's a third about that time I've thrown out here, there's a loud cracking noise. And they hear the doors to the chapel open. Everything kind of stops for a second. Even Van Moren. They are against a death knight. Against a death knight, everything is a squishy. Darsh is a squishy against a death knight. Death knights are dragon level villains. With more spells. To give you an idea. They're not like a baby dragon. A big dragon level boss. It's, a death Knight very often is your boss in an adventure. So Death Knights are serious business. I, if it wasn't the situation of the story and how this is going to unfold, I wouldn't have put them against a Death Knight yet because they really technically weren't ready to beat one. But they didn't have to. The whole courtyard lights up as Fenton steps outside of the Citadel and into the courtyard. He's glowing with a holy light that even the undead are stumbling back from. Van Morin has to pull his hand up to cover himself in the light. Menandra looks at her friend and smiles. Oh no, we're good. Looks at her friend and smiles. And Fenton looks at her and you just see the tears running down his face because she knows that he prayed to the gods and the gods answered. And Fenton says, You'll not hurt my children 
ever again. And takes his warhammer and smacks it on the ground. And what it does, I will tell you about next week. That's what we'll talk about on Thursday. Um, is what's going to happen in that situation. Oh, no. Beast. I knew. Yeah, I got you, sir. I knew where that was going. So, on Thursday, we'll talk about what uh, what happens when Fenton hits that hammer on the ground. Probably pretty cool. I would think. I mean, maybe. I don't know. Maybe nothing happens. Maybe he breaks his hammer. I mean, I don't know. It could happen. You know? Maybe there was a bug. Maybe he really hates cockroaches and really wanted to get that one. For the like. I mean, you don't know. We'll talk about it on Thursday. So... I'm very much enjoying this. As I told you. <laughs> really happy about. I'm hoping you guys are finding this story interesting. I know it's a grand scoping kind of thing. It's outside of the regular Merge World stuff. And it's inside this book. But I'm hoping that you guys are finding the Sans storyline interesting. Um. I know it was a lot of fun to play through with them, uh, but I was a little worried that as it's coming out, it may not come across as cool as it was to play it. Um, this is a part of the story that I rarely ever got to tell because it's you see how far in it is, I normally don't get to tell this part to people. I'm glad Turtle... Okay, cool. Um, there's a very good chance this entire section of the campaign is going... <laughs> this very section of the campaign will be finished on Thursday. Um, so I'm very, very, uh, excited to do that. Um, because as I was telling some friends today, um, in the next episode, we're going to, hold on one second. In the next episode, we are going to get to a point that I've referenced that there was a time that I heard a song. And when that song happened, I immediately had a scene in my mind for characters. I'm going to say who or which or when. But I immediately had a scene for characters. And that song, literally in my head, I pictured exactly what I want to happen. And I wrote story to get to that scene. That scene is next. It will be on our story Thursday. It's the first time that I can say... Um, a song, because songs help me inspire me for areas, and I've had ideas, and while listening to songs, it'll help me work out my ideas. But this is the first time that a song literally inspired the entire, th the entire idea just from hearing the song. Uh, so after I tell that, uh, I will tell you guys the song if you ever want to go listen to it. Uh, it is on the soundtrack that I posted um, on the Merge World's Instagram, but it's on there. Um, but yes, um, we have that. We have two... Hang on one more second. Three. Okay, hold on. I'm making sure it's in here. There are two big things that are going to happen. There's the third thing. Okay. Okay, that's the other big one. Oh, thank God it's here. So, one of the most important moments that I believe I've ever put into Dungeons & Dragons that had the most effect on someone ever 
will be on Thursday. I was pretty sure. I wanted to make sure. I'm very excited to get to three specific points in next week's story. Um, so, or say next week. It's literally what four days away. Today's Sunday. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Yeah, four days away. Um, um, difficult when you start messing with time. It does. You see my 3D? I did. It looks cool. I, I wouldn't begin to know how to print it yet. I'm still working on getting the 3D printer. I've got to find a way to ventilate it. Because it has to have ventilation. Um, and I don't want the cats to get sick. So I'm trying to figure out a way to ventilate it through my fireplace. That I can contain it so it doesn't hurt my cats. So that's one thing that's delayed me getting that. Is i got to make sure i got a way to do that first. But, all right. Didn't go over too far. It's a new adventure in 5th edition going smoothly. We haven't started playing it yet. Today we finished creating the characters. Um, we are going to start actually playing it, not this week, but next week. Will be the uh, the first actual gameplay day. So, uh, I believe the characters look a lot of fun. Uh, I've created an NPC that I really like. Uh, that I think is going to pop up in different places at different times. That I'm very excited um, uh, the three characters we have is a gnome monk, a drow cleric of knowledge, and a half-elf cleric of the light are the three characters. So, excited to get into that, and maybe down the road we'll tell their story a little bit too. Alright, well, guys, I'm gonna call that a day. Um, reminder that tomorrow night, 6 p.m. Eastern, will be, um, more Minecraft. Hopefully you'll become there. He's the gnome. No monk. Um, so, um, hopefully you'll come and hang out with some Minecraft. This week is the last week of what would be known as my normal streaming schedule. With the exception of Thursday, since I'm off, Merge Rolls is going to pop in there and we're tweaking some things. And then the week after that, starting on the 7th, is when the new stream schedule kicks in. I already have it posted on my website. Um, so definitely check that out if you're interested to see when I'm going to be streaming. It's going to be very different. Uh, it's going to take at least, I say, a few weeks to probably adjust to it. And I'm going to have to tweak some to figure out. Uh, let's see. Bragg asks, when do you assume the community in I'm not sure yet. Still working on it. Um, because again, I've got to get, I'm, this first adventure that I'm playing with, uh, my friends and my wife. Is so that I can... The big part of that is so I can figure out exactly how 5th edition works. Because I don't want to jump in and start streaming online and have to figure out the game while I'm doing it. So it's 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 a chance for me to play D&D &D with my wife, which I've always wanted to do and never thought I'd get the shot. Um, plus, i got Jim and Ashley, who are huge fans and been wanting to do this for a while. Um, so it gives me an opportunity to have some fun D&D, &D, get to hang out with my wife, but it gives me a chance to figure out how the game works because I've already had to tweak a couple of the rules to match my playstyle, um, and I've actually had to switch some of my playstyle to match the new rules of fifth edition because there's a few things I, I'd say at most, at most. Um, I know it won't be for April. March is my trial run of the new schedule, and I'm assuming I'm I'm, I'm streaming every day, seven days a week. Uh, I believe I can handle that. I don't think that's going to be a problem. Um, 
but I may have to tweak it a bit when April comes once I see how that schedule works. Some days I might be like, wow, I could have, I could have streamed more this day. Some days I may have needed to stream a little less. I want to make sure that I'm allowing myself some time as well to be able to film things like tutorials and videos behind the dice and stuff like that. So I'm... Uh, I'm always, you know, I want to make sure I have time to work on all these projects so that you're still getting the same content you had, but with more stuff on top of that. So I've got to kind of hammer that out. March is going to be my trial run to see how the schedule goes. I, by April, I'm going to assume I have a permanent uh, stream schedule. So we will look. Month or two at most, I'd say. I'd like to by early April would be my goal. Uh, if it were an audible book, I would have binged the entire thing all the way through. Curse you and your painful clip. <laughs> well, you know, it is available on iTunes and Spotify, although it is a couple episodes behind. I usually run them a week or two behind, uh, just because it takes some time. And for some reason, the last episode, 37, that I put up, didn't post. i got to figure out why. It, I put up there, and for some reason, it didn't go live. And everything on my end says it is, so I've got to figure out what causes that. But tomorrow night, 6 o'clock. A little bit more Minecraft. Thank you all for coming by and hanging out today. It has been a pleasure, and I've enjoyed sharing my story with you yet again. Um, if you had a good time, please remember to click like. If you haven't, be sure to hit subscribe. Uh, make sure you join our Discord. Go to my website, onlydraven.com. Link to the Discord. Link to all my socials. On Thursday, I'm going to be announcing the social media contest for the month of March. Want to win you some free stuff? Social media is the way to do it. Follow my Facebook, my Twitter, and both of the Instagrams. There's a Merge Worlds one, and there's a Only Draven Gaming one. The more you follow, the more you participate, the better chance you have of winning some loot and stash. So, thank you for that. Special thank you, as always, to my members. Thank you so much. Um, I appreciate you guys for continuing to support the channel as you do, as well as to all the phenomenal people who have been donating uh, and supporting the channel that way. I appreciate all of you who are supporting. Even if you're just coming and listening and watching and clicking like, that means a ton to me as well. However you support the channel, I honestly swear, I, I appreciate it more than you'll ever know. And, of course, an extra special thank you to my moderators, those in blue, because them some kick-ass people who do some really good work. All right? All right, kids. Hopefully, I will see you again tomorrow for some Minecraft. But you guys have yourselves a wonderful evening, and I will see you again soon. Have a good day.